Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I have been known to join in the Twilight Bark as it erupts across the London skyline, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I am a humble street rat pinching breads, chilling with monkeys and evading capture as we watch through 60 films and counting. As ever, I've rubbed the magic lamp, I've summoned a genie of animation academia who can make all our wishes come true and teach us all about the making of our firm Disney favourite this week. I regularly disturb his slumber with my WhatsApps about these movies. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how's things? I am good. Yeah, things are pretty good on this end. I'm pretty excited for the weekend. Ben, what's happening at the weekend? So for listeners uh, who have heard our Beauty and the Beast episode, by the time you hear this I will have got married. I'm getting married this weekend. I will have returned from honeymoon and that's why you'll be hearing this episode. But as it happens, the wedding's not happened yet. We're a couple of days away. So if I sound either extremely stressed or sound all up in my romantic feelings, that is why. And Sam, you have a big job on the day. Are you ready to be our master of ceremonies at my wedding? Yeah, I only recently discovered weddings have masters of ceremonies. Uh, My job is basically just to kind of shout what's happening before it happens. (laughs) Which I think I'm I'm qualified for. That's part of what being a lecturer is all about. It's just being able to shout loudly to large rooms full of people. So I think I'm fully qualified. You made me a little hat. I made you a special hat. Also part of what being a podcaster is all about. So you are well equipped for this. But I am extremely excited to say we are once again not alone for this episode. Joining us is one of my very favourite podcasters, comedians, actors, you name it, he's done it. Uh, He's appeared in one of my very favourite episodes of 30 Rock. He led an incredible episode of Marvel 616 about the comic book craziness that is Brute Force, which you absolutely must watch on Disney+. You've seen him in films like The Disaster Artist and Popstar. Plus, he's the perfect person to ask the question, how did this get made? and help us unspool another Walt Disney Animation Studios classic. So a huge Disneyversity welcome to Paul Shear. How are you doing? I am so excited to be here. And I also just want to say thank you for having me because I understand time zones are a, a bear to kind of uh, figure out the difference of. And so I, I, what time is it there for you right now? It must be very late. It's not too bad. It's like half seven coming up eight o'clock. Okay, so not it's, bad. It's pretty good. What, okay, what time great. for you? Because you're in LA right now, are you? I'm in LA. It's 11.30. I know this is not the most engaging conversation. <laughs> now I realize why I have to answer this question all the time with my grandparents and my, my parents who are on the East Coast. They always ask as if it's going to change. It's not like a <laughs> rotating scale. It's like 
three hours difference. I don't have it right in my head, the difference between uh, here and there, but my parents should figure it out by now. They're like, what time is it Wednesday there? I'm like, no, it's just, it's just 11 AM and it's two o'clock for you. That's all it is. It's not that far off. Yeah. Well, we're coming to you from the future right now. It's still Tuesday. We're on the same day. We're just coming several hours ahead of you. But yeah, well, you're thanking us for kind of fitting this into our evenings. I want to thank you because how did this get made is a total blast, but I'm a huge fan, especially of Unspooled. And that is a big influence on our show. But some might say ripoff. That might be uh, an accurate phrase. You know what? We all are just talking about movies. There's no (laughs) ripping off because I I really firmly believe like I love the idea of the show and what you have all been doing with, I think, having these conversations about movies. I think. We live in a time where everything has become so disposable and we live in our little shells and bubbles and we don't often get a chance to talk with one another about these things that we love. And I feel like that was such a part of my growing up is sitting around, you know, dissecting these movies. And now we have letterbox and you can read other people's reviews. But very rarely do you get to sit around and talk about great movies. And so the more the merrier, honestly. <laughs> well, I always loved what you and your co-host Amy Nicholson did in, in setting the films that you talk about in context. And for our listeners who maybe haven't checked out the show before, tee up where you started with Unspooled and what you're doing with it now. Yeah. So Unspooled originally started because I noticed in my own film knowledge, there was a dearth of classic films that I never saw, like just movies that I knew were good, but I never got around to watching them. They never felt like something I wanted to watch, like in the heat of the night, like when are you ever in the mood for in the heat of the night or, and I looked at this list of a hundred films. I was like, let's make that a podcast. Let's go through and I'll do it with uh, somebody that I really respect. Amy Nicholson's a New York Times film critic and she's got great opinions and is not snobby or snooty in any way, but has really passionate feelings about the oddest cult films and then all the way to giant blockbusters. So we did that. And at the end, we kind of realized that AFI list, you know, was only American films. It felt really lopsided. There's no female directors represented. There was only one person of color who was a director that was represented. You know, there is very few animated films on that list. There were so many problems with it that we decided let's go off and make our own list. So we took the 100 from the AFI list, cut that down to 40. And slowly we've been adding to it as we've gone on to eventually when we get our 100, send it into outer space. But it's becoming harder and harder even do because 100 films, we're knocking off films that should be on the list. It's just too hard. Yeah. But we're having a lot of fun watching great movies. It's so much fun hearing you guys discussing what should be on this list that's going to be sent out to space. Oh, yeah. But I have I have a qualm because uh, you recently yeah, did an animation season, which was great. So good. And oh, a pleasure you. for me to hear Americans talking about Wallace and Gromit is like a very specific oh, pleasure. Yes. And I just found out that Marrow is zucchini. Yes. Uh, we didn't know when we <laughs> watched the episode. We couldn't figure out what Marrow was. And now I understand it's zucchini. Yeah, yeah. Cultural differences. But you have no animation on your list yet what is going on well yes so we are trying to rectify that and that is uh something that we've held ourselves to a high standard in a way that we do these little mini series and then on that mini series we normally take one or none and so when we do an animation mini series like well which one should we take and we went back and forth and you know we did porco rosso which is a miyazaki film and like well, well should we take that one because I mean, it's not probably as great as another Miyazaki. We we go back and forth. And so what we finally wound up taking was into the Spider-Verse in the sense that we felt like that was 
doing some really interesting things in the animation world and kind of opened it up to whatever fifth or sixth wave, whatever wave we're into. I think it opened up another wave of animation. But the other problem is, and I don't want to sell my co-host under the bus, Amy, not a Disney fan, not a Pixar fan. So it's very hard to kind of get her in line because to me, there are some very clear Pixar movies and I love Snow White. There's a lot of movies that could be up for contention, but I, I want to pick them carefully because I know She'll just jettison them <laughs> right out the window, you know, if she gets a chance. You've got to choose those battles. I mean, you. so you've done Snow White as an episode because that is on the AFI yes. uh, 100 mm-hmm. list. Uh, you recently did Frozen as an episode. Uh, you also yes. did, not Disney canon, but Shrek. Sam as our Shrek academic yes. wrote, literally wrote the academic book on Shrek. Amazing. I Look, I had a lot of feelings about Shrek because I feel like Shrek is a movie that people, or at least in my experience, kind of like use a little bit as a punching bag, an animation punching bag. And when you go back and watch the original Shrek, again, one of those game-changing films that came in, did something that no one else was doing. I think they filled a void to kind of fill up the middle of what Disney couldn't do and brought people back to animation. I think I have a lot more appreciation for Shrek in the rewatch. Now, I think, and we'll talk about this today, I'm sure, what happens with all these movies is one success spawns so many other things. And then all of a sudden, the so many other things start to get wrapped up in your remembrance of the original, right? Like we're not looking at Shrek anymore. We're looking at four Shrek sequels as Puss in Boots. We're looking at video games, uh, you know, fast food tie-ins. And all of a sudden you're like, I've seen Donkey a million times. I hate Donkey. It's like, well, do you hate Donkey? Or do you hate Donkey because Donkey has been forced down our throat for you know 25 years and that's why i mean look this may be a controversial opinion it's good that mickey doesn't have a personality we're not really uh, we can't you can't really force mickey down your throat because we don't know even what he is like we don't know like ah oh, mickey's a real he's a real jokester <laughs> i mean now they're trying to give him a little bit more personality but the disney canon or those disney classic characters for better or for worse their lack of personality has allowed them to stay relevant for much, much longer. Yeah, you know? it's not like, oh, I like that first Minnie Mouse movie, but I didn't like the third one. You know, it's like <laughs> you, they don't they really have avoided some of that. And I know people go, oh, well, Steamboat Willie, but really Steamboat Willie, Fantasia, show me the difference I, between Mickey as a character. I, I don't know. Mickey and Steamboat Willie is a really horrible dude. <laughs> Mickey and Steamboat <laughs> Willie spends his time like torturing barnyard animals for his own amusement. <laughs> it's a really uh, bizarre, bizarre film. But yeah, I, I definitely agree that it's behooved that company to keep him as just a blank slate. But now, yeah, they're kind of making these new Mickey Mouse cartoons where they've, like, what what kind of personality do we give Mickey? And they've basically settled on SpongeBob. Like, Mickey just yeah. has the personality of SpongeBob now, which is not timeless, I don't think. I, I enjoy some no. of those cartoons, but it's not timeless. They're fun. They're more violent than you might expect. And again, they have a little bit of an edge to them. Now, I have a uh, a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, and we spent a lot of time watching Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. And there's a version of that Mickey that I'm kind of like, maybe that's where they should live in that thing. Because I don't know if you need to update an attitude. Because it, it is, it's hard. It's like this new thing where it's like, it looks a little bit like Cuphead, the animation in Cuphead, yeah. you know, has that, that kind of tone. And great for Cuphead, but... Is it Disney? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's I'd rather have my like fun characters be the, you know, like 
create a character, you know, a Roger Rabbits or whatever, like give me a new character, but like let those other characters kind of just sit as figureheads in a way. Yeah, or a genie. Yes. Uh, there we go. Perfect segue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Paul, in terms of what these characters then mean to you, what Disney means to you, let, let's take it way back. What's your history with Disney movies? Which are the ones that you grew up on? Because everyone has their very specific Disney era of what was being released from the vault on VHS, what was being re-released in the cinemas, what the new films were. What were the Disney films that you grew up on? So I came into Disney as a fan of the parks first. Really, that that is my true memory of Disney. Like, I loved the parks. And we got to go to Florida maybe like once a year. It was a time where yeah, we didn't have a lot of money, but it, you could go to Florida from New York for like $75 for an airplane ticket. It was relatively inexpensive. This is before Disney was, you know, you had to bankrupt the entire family to go for two days. You could kind of just go in and and spend a weekend or if you had a day off, multiple days off, not just a day off. So I really remember that. And I think the first film that got me from Disney was probably Fox and the Hound. Like I was much younger there. I saw that in the theater. And again, my exposure to Disney was primarily through Disney books, books about the movies. So I had this memory of Pinocchio and Sleeping Beauty, but I never had seen them in the theater or even had them on VHS because we'll, you know, we'll talk about the vault, but the idea that they were a part of my storybook time and I looked at the pictures and I knew the characters and I felt the world, but I didn't really see the films. And so for me, what we're going to be talking about today is truly the prime Disney renaissance that I grew up in as a high school student, like a, a late high school student. This was the Beauty and the Beast, the Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Lion King. That was my Disney of, oh, I like Disney. I like these movies. And I just felt incredibly connected. I was going to the theater. I was looking out for them. I was excited for them. This movie in particular we're talking about today, Aladdin, was definitely the one that's in my the sweetest of my sweet spots. But those four films were really big for me. Mm. That's really interesting because these movies came out when me and Ben were little kids. Yeah. So these were like children's movies for us. And by the time we were teenagers, Disney in general, maybe arguably will get there eventually on the podcast, kind of sucked a little bit. Right, yeah. So we didn't really have that experience of going to see new Disney movies as teenagers, maybe some of the Pixar's. But when you read about the reception of a lot of these movies, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, The Land Lion King... There's a lot of talk about how they were suddenly appealing to teenagers and appealing to like people going on dates and these whole new demographics. So it's great that we've got you as a, as a real-life example of that. I grew up in a time where it was kind of a decline of Disney. Like, right, the it wasn't as popular for films. Like, Don Bluth was doing American Tale. And then, you know, I think after Eisner came in, they started to build up again. So really, like, this 1990, when I am in high school, like a freshman in high school, or maybe just coming into high school, is when everything started to feel like, whoa, Disney's a thing. Nightmare Before Christmas is a part of this. Like, they're doing really exciting stuff. And I think it kind of ends with Toy Story. Like, that was like the run there. And then it just kind of jumps to the next level after that. But yeah, I was in a, a Disney dry dock for a long time. Like, it wasn't anything that anyone talked about. And, you know, occasionally we'd pop on Robin Hood 
I worked at Blockbuster and that was like one of the few films that wasn't never behind the vault. It was just out and about. But yeah, I would watch those every now and then. And mainly the songs would stick out. But now you're making me think about there was like a Billy Joel one, right? About oh, yeah. a bunch of dogs. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, Paul, we've talked about so many classic movies on this. We've done like Bambi, we've done Dumbo, we've done all the classics. Yeah. The episode that we spent the longest recording was Oliver and Company. We went deep on Oliver and oh. Company. Sam loves that movie. He loves his Billy Joel. I am going to download that as soon as I get off of this because <laughs> that Oliver and Company was a movie that was really the song really hit too like that's the other thing like these songs these disney songs in this era and i don't know i mean obviously frozen seems like an anomaly and the bruno song like we don't talk about bruno from encanto those are anomalies ultimately but in this era this 1990s era these were like songs that were on the radio people were buying these cds they were playing them loud and i also felt like there were more hits per film you know, it wasn't just like the Phil Collins singing the Tarzan theme, you know, that obviously Billy Joel, Oliver and company sticks out to me. I can remember it right away. But yeah, I feel like this is a true renaissance of the, the Broadway vacation of it. Like, you know, it really became this idea like these became Broadway films, like very much the structure. And that's why I think you see this very easy transition, even though production wise insane of making all these Disney films into very popular stage shows. Yeah. So just before we crack on with Aladdin, what, what are the other Disney films that mean a lot to you now? What are the ones that you've either seen as an adult or gone back to now that you didn't see as a kid that, that mean a lot to you? Look, I'm not going to lie. I, I will start off and say Aladdin and Lion King probably mean the most to me, right? Those are the movies that I felt hit me at a point where I felt ownership over them, right? They, there was something about it like being, I love this. As a kid, The Rescuers, that was big. I love the rescuers. I did love those characters and I love the adventure of it. I think it made me feel like I was watching a James Bond movie, but they're little mice. And then, you know, the movie that I went back and I was really surprised at because people really raked me over the coals after an episode of Unspooled was The Emperor's New Groove, which I know you're going to get to in a little bit, but that's been one that I feel like doesn't get much love. And is a really bizarre, interesting, like Disney doesn't really know where its footing is. And so they kind of like take a mulligan. And in taking a mulligan, they release this bizarre film that is incredibly unique. And if you know it, you know it. And if you don't, you're just like, ah, Emperor's New Groove, forget it. <laughs> you know, kind of goes in that other trash can pile. But yeah, th those are the movies that really, uh, that were really big for me. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to get to that point of the timeline. It feels like there's some gems to be unearthed there. People talk so much about Lilo and Stitch, with, which I've not seen, and I'm not allowed to see mm. now until we get there. Emperor's New Groove I have seen, but a long time ago, I'm excited to revisit that. Oh, you know what I also love too is Princess and the Frog. Right. A movie oh, that great. also another interesting, cool one. I remember going, why aren't people talking about this one? This one seemed really fun and weird and dark. Yeah, that's another one that really like that I probably watched a little bit out of my Disney. Like I felt like a return to form, like there was maybe like one or two like, eh. and then that one felt really fun and really different. But it's interesting, like what popular culture connects to. Absolutely. Well, for now, that is enough from us. We're all sat down. The register's complete and it's time for class to begin. So this time we're hopping on a magic carpet and flying to Agrabah with 1992's Aladdin. 
Now, Sam, as ever, it's come to the question, have you prepared a plot synopsis for Aladdin or not? Have you prepared this bit in advance? And if so, <laughs> can you give us a little... So everyone knows this story, but come on, give us a little bit of plot. What's the story of Aladdin? I have not prepared this bit in advance. <laughs> this is one of the occasions on which I forgot. But Aladdin is about a humble street rat who finds a magic lamp and frees a genie, gets three wishes uses them to try and woo a princess. Meanwhile, there's an evil sorcerer who's trying to acquire the lamp to take over the kingdom. Everyone is happy in the end, apart from the sorcerer. That's the plot synopsis. That's it. I improved it. It was fine. Yeah. Wow. I loved it. Straight from the top of the dome. <laughs> well, we've been building up to this one for a while because we've had a couple of films that have had these songs from Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. We talked a lot about Howard Ashman when we did The Beauty and the Beast. This was a Howard Ashman passion project. So did Aladdin begin as a Disney movie with these songs, with Howard Ashman, or was it already a story that Disney were interested in? Yeah, a lot of these fairy tale stories that we've looked at have been in the pipeline since almost like as long as Walt Disney, like Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, Walt worked on versions of all of these. But I think Aladdin really did seem to come from Howard Ashman. He was really interested in the story. He played Aladdin on stage when he was a kid. So yeah, this was a passion project of his. And he was the main driving force behind it initially, not only in terms of writing the songs with Mencken, but he wrote the initial treatment for the movie. He wrote a script and he gave... Katzenberg a script with his lyrics with the songs and it was like there you go we're going to make this Aladdin movie but he was pulled away from that to work on Beauty and the Beast he kept tinkering away on Aladdin on the side but by the time this movie entered production he was dead he'd passed away so you know after that things started to diverge quite a bit from his initial pitch the initial pitch focused a lot on the relationship between aladdin and his mother for example and that was something that katzenberg cut almost straight away because they needed the story to be a bit cleaner so there's a lot of songs that ashman wrote from that which didn't make it into the film as well which is quite sad but they've all survived in various forms which is something we'll come to later on so beauty and the beast was an absolute banger in all senses it was a massive box office smash it continued the rise of the disney renaissance did they know that this was going to be a banger too? You've got more Mencken, Ashman and Tim Rice coming in for the songs as well. You've got Musker and Clements returning as directors, having directed The Little Mermaid. Surely there must have been good feelings at the studio about how Aladdin was going to do. Yeah, there was a sense by this point that we're on a roll and we want to keep all of these elements in place on these forthcoming movies to the extent that we can. So, for example, the animators have been working out of this, like, crappy warehouse since Eisner and Katzenberg took over. At the staff premiere of Beauty and the Beast, Eisner announced that he was building them a new dedicated animation building on the Disney lot for them to work from. So they are suddenly putting a lot more money into animation and putting a lot more faith in these guys to tell these stories. And we're boosting production as well, so we're now going to be aiming to get one of these films every year. There's a sense that things are going very well, and there's no sense at all that things could grind to a halt quality wise i mean that's a relief because there's been various points in this timeline where it's like if this film flops the studio is dead animation is dead it's all about the parks because it's, it's nice to be in a point in the timeline where disney is thriving again now before we get into our main in-depth discussion i'm fascinated to talk to you about this paul as well but i want to ask how and when did it come about that robin williams was going to be on board this film because you cannot imagine aladdin without him i don't know trying to make some uh, even i don't know live action aladdin movie without robin williams feels like a fool's errand well i mean robin williams to me single-handedly 
and depending on how you want to look at it, destroys or reinvigorates the animation world in the sense that all of a sudden, Robin Williams' attachment to it, there is something so iconic about his voice that I think they go, oh, the, the secret sauce in animation now is famous people that we know, and we'll lead with that. Because before Robin Williams, you didn't know who was doing the voices. I didn't know. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, my favorite actor is now also the voice of that shark. You know, th this is a, a model that DreamWorks definitely ran with. And you can tell, like, you know, you can tell that they were like, this is the key because they can promote the film. Robin Williams can go on talk shows, talk about the movie. They couldn't really do that before. It became another type of film. Now, was this like the perfect character for Robin Williams? Yes. But I'd argue any character would have been perfect for Robin Williams because he would have done the same thing, <laughs> yeah. right? Like it is just Robin Williams. Like, yes, he happens to be a genie and they animate really well around him, changing his voices and things like that. But you put him in anything, that dynamic, that energy, that, you know, it's a perfect pairing of character and voice. But truly, it, like I, I believe that he is the person that brings animation into the 90s like and opens up a whole new field and i think it would have happened in anything but it happened here and it was great because it was the perfect kind of thing and i think he knew it because he was very aware of saying and you can't do this without me you can't reuse my voice you can't like you gotta very much respect me if i die because i know that you will not i know that you will grind me into a pulp you'll donkey me uh like shrek <laughs> has been donkeyed and forever be like uh used as a salesman I mean, you can put that theory to the test about whether another movie with Robin Williams would have done just as well, because one came out that same year, uh, Fern Gully, colon, The Last Rainforest. Oh, okay. And he plays a, it's an Australian animated film, and he plays a I remember it rapping well. bat called Batty. Amazing. <laughs> it, didn't do, it didn't do quite as well. <laughs> that is true. I mean, now, maybe I should say that, for I remember Fern Gully... It has to be good. The movie has to be good, yeah. right? Okay, I mean, that, 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 that is part of it. Yeah. I, I don't think he would be able to rescue a bad movie. Fern Gully wasn't like, oh, Fern Gully. If Fern Gully was good and he was great in it, you would hear about it. Like, I feel like you heard a lot about Johnny Depp and Rango. Like, you know, it's like, oh my God, one of the, that voice acting was so great. A couple of things have to come into play. But yes, quality is definitely one of them because I, I think you're, yeah, it was the first great stunt casting. Yeah. It's, it's the first one where, like, I think more so than in Fern Gully as well, like this star performance fundamentally like warps and shapes the movie around it. Like it could not exist in this form with a different actor in that role. It is predicated on Robin Williams and like the specific talents that he has that he brings to the role that make him Robin Williams. And what you see down the line with that is the text warping even more around the actor when you've got like Shark Tale where the fish looks like Will Smith and the fish right. looks like Robert De Niro. And it's like, this was built around that character. There's an example from the previous year of this happening. Another bad movie, which did badly, called Rover Dangerfield. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, with Rodney Dangerfield as a dog who gets no respect, obviously. <laughs> um, I can't remember anything else that he does, but I can tell you what I he mean, doesn't do. I mean, that's all you need. We're all in. Yeah, he gets no respect. Now, I, I mean, I was wondering about this, too, and we'll probably get into it as we break down the movie, but I felt like Robin Williams was so good in this movie that they tacked on the beginning of this film because they're like, we can't wait for you to meet him. We're going to give you a little taste of him 
before this movie starts. And that was, to me, a mind-blowing thing because the movie opens with a salesman, like a bizarre salesman in both senses of the words. It is Robin Williams. And I think a lot of people didn't even put that together at first, or at least as a kid, it was like, did you know that was also Robin Williams in the beginning? Oh my gosh, yeah, it was. But there is something that I, in rewatching it, where I'm like, oh, they definitely knew what they had. And I could very easily see them going, let's just add a narrator who never really comes back just to let you know that you're going to get some really funny Robin Williams stuff in a little bit. Yeah, and you get that gag straight away with the camera where he's like, come closer, come closer, yeah. bonk, oh, too close. And that's not in the script. Like, that line is a Robin Williams improvisation, and that's one of, you know, he was improvising this whole movie, and that's part of the reason why the genie fits that character really well because you can visualize these improvisations. And one of the ways that they got him to sign on was they got the lead animator on the character, Eric Goldberg, to take one of his stand-up performances, like a scene from one of his stand-up shows, and animate the genie over the top of it to show him what this would look like. But you even get that with this salesman at the start, whereby, like, Robin Williams is just dragging Disney right up to the fourth wall through sheer force of will. Like, the fourth wall stuff, that particular joke... I mean, there's not really many fourth wall breaks in the movie, like, proper ones. No. There's right at the start and right at the end. But that's a Robin Williams improv line that just shows how much his presence colors this film in its entirety you know yeah i think it's a movie that also what they let happen here is they start having a little bit of fun with disney as well like they have that pinocchio bit right and it started to feel like disney wasn't treating itself as seriously with this one and 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 who knows if that's purely Robin Williams or they couldn't contain Robin Williams or it was too funny that the Disney execs were like, we'll let it through. Like if you wrote that in a script, could you actually put that in the movie? Would it get stopped a million times? But he improvises it. It's so funny. You can't say no to it. It just feels like I think that Robin Williams, like I said, changes the course of Disney history just by being him because it's not a character. It's not a voice. We just, you know, recently saw Jack Black do his Bowser voice for the world at New York City Comic Con for the new Super Mario movie. And it's not Jack Black being Jack Black. Much will get, you know, at one point, I'm sure there'll be a podcast where everyone could break down Chris Pratt's voice in that. But Chris Pratt is definitely Chris Pratt. But Jack Black is not. This is Robin Williams. I mean, there is no doubt about it. This is Robin Williams on stage. He happens to have a genie overlay. But there's like the slightest of tinge. But it really is. This is him on the Today Show versus him on you know, in the movie, it's very hard to parse which is which. In the Academy, we call it yes. the difference between presentational performance and representational performance. Oh, okay, yeah. So like you can have a representational performance where the actor represents a character, or you can have a presentational performance where they are presenting themselves directly to the audience. And this is one of the first big presentational performances in an animated movie, and that's what you would get a lot more further down the line in your Shreks and your Shark Tales and all of that. Well... Robin Williams cannot be contained in this movie. Discussions of Robin Williams cannot be contained in this podcast. He's busting through walls, busting through our structure. I think it's time to get into the movie itself, get into that opening scene. Uh, So if you guys are ready for it, let's go to Agrabah. You up for it? Yeah, let's do it. So as you've handily already set up, we are straight in with Robin Williams in this movie. Long, long before the genie pops up, we get him in this little role up front that just kind of gives you a little hint, a little tease of what what we're going to get 
down the line. And uh, I'd kind of forgotten the fact that there is, as you say, Paul, a narrator here who then promptly disappears. We never go back to this narrator, but we are being told this story. A part of the Disney presentation often is us entering a book at the start of the movie. We don't enter a book here, but we are being told a story. We have a character who is pulling us along this narrative and bringing us into... Oh god, I can't believe I'm going to say it already. A whole new world for Disney. Uh, we've had so many fairy tales that have been kind of European, Germanic influences. We've had a lot of films set in kind of Walt Disney's America and mythologizing the earlier years of the United States. But this is taking us to kind of Middle East and Southeast Asian cultures for the first time. Sam, let's get into it straight up front. We have, for the first time in a little while, the outdated cultural depictions warning at the beginning of this movie. Yeah, that's something we got very used to seeing in like the 1940s and 50s and which had died off for a little bit. But it, yeah, it is back in this movie. This is kind of the first big Disney cultural tourism movie that they do. Like the first movie where it's like, let's go to a country and... I guess try our best to represent the people of that country, but you can see all the like they're still doing this as late as in Cantor. And as we look at these over time, we're going to see them gradually start to more actively incorporate voices of people from those cultures. At this point in time, that's almost non-existent. Well, I was going to say that seeing that warning at the front, I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is a very interesting way of doing this, and I thought respectful. And then. Please correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm working this thought out in my own head. There's something really nice about the simplicity of not making stereotypes. It's just, it feels very much like an Americanized version of this world. It doesn't feel like it's leaning too hard, where I could see other things playing into some maybe very broad, culturally insensitive things. I would say the ding here is, it just doesn't play into any. It just... It's just flat, like not in a bad way, but it's like the universal is the Western idea of what this is. But it's I was kind of impressed with that after seeing so many movies like they didn't step in it in a way that I thought that they could. If that makes sense. Yeah, it's I mean, it's not as bad as one can imagine it being, especially given yes. that this, it came out kind of at the start of the first Gulf War as well. So it yeah. was obviously a, like originally it was going to be set in Baghdad. The name Agrabah came about because oh, of the wow. Gulf War is like we don't want to we want to draw as few connections to that actual part of the world as we can yeah and that the americanness of it is interesting like I, for example you get little nods to like islam like they say allah where you would say mm -hmm. god in a, in a western movie but it's not in like a hugely thoughtful way they've just kind of swapped it in where they would ordinarily say right. god like like just allah bless you or, or allah or whatever it's like someone visited there once like like their cultural uh, rep was like oh yeah don't say god uh, oh and that's what they call this but it, it, it's very surfacey it's like textbook style like and here this culture does that yeah Ooh. but again you're right like it it's amazing how far we've come to really tell a story but even when you look at something like beauty and the beast they definitely play up the French, right? Like they embrace that a little bit. And then some characters, they don't at all. So it is odd that you're in this like, you know, it, it's this weird thing that Disney walks where it's like, oh, well, maybe for a comic relief, we'll mm -hmm. do this. But here, the way we're introduced, first character speaking is Robin Williams as, again, Robin Williams. There's nothing, his character is, you know, not a white man, but also not 
overtly or stereotypically drawn in a way that you'd be like, oh, like, you know, it's, it's I think all the characters of Dizzy kind of live in the same mold. Yeah, I think they're trying not to tread too close to like full on like stereotypical caricatures of the kind that you would see in World War Two anti-Japanese propaganda films yes, and stuff yeah. like that. But yeah, it's so, there was still some criticism, like the American Arab anti-defamation committee said that the film's light-skinned lead characters, Aladdin and Jasmine, have anglicized features and Anglo-American accents in contrast sure. to the other characters who are dark-skinned, swarthy, and villainous who have Arabic accents and grotesque facial features. And I think that's true to an extent. I think Aladdin and Jasmine's skin color like shifts a lot, actually, from shot to shot. The scenes where they look whiter. And I know that Aladdin was... Um, his design was partially based on Tom Cruise, apparently, which was a, oh, wow. a Katzenberg suggestion, as you might imagine. That is the most Katzenberg suggestion possible. He's there with his mountains of Diet Coke, just being like, make him look like Tom Cruise. It's the 80s, <laughs> yeah. or it's the early 90s. That's what people want to see. The big initial change, this is one of the only times that something has been changed for cultural sensitivity reasons after a Disney movie's been released and has just been kept that way, is that in the original lyrics to... Arabian Nights, it's where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. And that was another thing that was protested and they changed it to when it's flat and immense and the heat is intense. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. I remember that lyric now that you're saying it because that was one of the things in hearing this opening, that song is like, all of a sudden, I'm brought back in. These songs really stuck with you. I mean, I'll... I will talk about it in a little bit, but I did also see the stage version of this as well. There are so many things about it that it is the textbook version, which is not a really well-researched version, but it's trying. And, you know, look, obviously, you know, when you say those things that like they are more white looking, I for sure buy that. I understand that. I feel like that is when are we going to learn that lesson? Even Prince of Persia, which came out, you know, almost uh, 15 years later is Jake Gyllenhaal in the lead of, you know, this, you're constantly up against this idea of what people want to accept as their lead characters. And I think we're, we're proving time and time again, like, no, 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 we can see every face like it can be okay you know but it's it seems like there is a fear of that at this point. I mean uh, something I was struck by entering this film is that I did feel excited to be heading into this world I think it does create a visually vibrant and exciting world to be a part of for this adventure story I think the thing that struck me most is that compared to something like Encanto what they've been doing more recently is trying to an extent be inside that culture and kind of broadcasting outwards whereas I think what you feel a lot for me in Aladdin and especially watching this again like I said I watched this loads in my childhood I grew up on this movie hadn't seen it in a long time and now seeing it in the light of the way that Disney does things now you can feel how different it is that this is an American studio looking in on a culture rather than trying to understand it from the inside and broadcast outwards. Uh, But I do think it comes with good intentions and that it is kind of playing partly into a lot of adventure tropes because it's telling an adventure story. Yes, and I think this is what I will take back as I've now said it and heard myself say it. It's like, I think it's weird to be... (laughs) slightly excited that they didn't do something incredibly offensive but that is not simply enough but at the same time i'm glad that we can still enjoy it right because it could have walked that line and especially what you're saying at that time 
where it could be one of those real black marks on the Disney catalog. And I do think the way that this film has existed has been remade and people still love. I watch this with my six-year-old who was laughing hysterically the entire time. Proves like, okay, this can actually, we can feel good about this. It's not great. Uh, in representation, but it saved itself from the worst version it could possibly be. Uh, I think it's because, like, we're talking about it as like an adventure story and like comparing it to something like Encanto. It's because it's not, it's not actually about it. Like, is so distanced from anything that really approaches an attempt to realistically depict Middle Eastern culture and Islamic people. And I think that's why it remains kind of something you can still enjoy because it is a fantasy, and that's kind of how it's based on. Arabic culture, Islamic culture at several degrees removed. Like it's based on the Arabian night stories, which in the version that we have them are like very heavily kind of translated and edited by a French guy from like a couple of hundred years ago, like nearly a thousand years after some of them were written. And Disney are getting that through like movies, like The Thief of Baghdad was a really big touchstone for this movie. So it's like several degrees removed from anything approaching reality. And, and it is this fantasy version that they are showing us. Like it's it's a depiction based on a depiction based on a depiction, and that's how you end up at such a remove from anything real. But I think if you do view it as a fantasy and not an attempt like something like Encanto or something like The Princess and the Frog to engage with an actual human culture, then you can remove yourself from those implications and enjoy it as a fantasy movie. Absolutely, yeah. Talking about this as a fantasy movie, as an adventure movie, a classic adventure movie needs a great adventure lead. That is so much a part of that formula. So let's talk about Aladdin as a character who, uh, it takes us a few minutes to get to Aladdin. We have this early scene with Jafar and the cave, which is a nice kind of tee up for what Aladdin himself is going to have to go through later in the movie. But it's not too long before we get to the main man himself. As ever with these 90s Renaissance movies, he is introduced in song with One Jump Ahead, which is another example of the, the dexterity of the lyricist and the Broadway intonations that kind of create these songs from these movies. What do you guys make of One Jump Ahead and how it introduces Aladdin to the audience? You know, for me, it goes back to the Broadway of the entire thing, right? This is a great opening number for your lead character. It's a movie that surprisingly doesn't have that many songs, mm. right? It, like, it's only a handful of songs. They're all, I'm going to say they're all bangers, but this is a great, typical Broadway like, I'm learning about the character, I'm learning about the world, and at the end of it, we have that uh, save the cat moment, you know, he's so hungry, he's not really stealing, he's not really being mean, and, you know, even though he's starving for food, he gives it to some kids in need at the very end. So at the end of it, it's the perfect, it's a street urchin, he's a good-hearted fella, living a tough life, doing the best he can, doesn't want to be doing this, but his hand has been dealt one of the interesting things about this character is his purity, like, and his conflict throughout. He initially wants to let the genie go and his wrestling with what does this all mean? You know, he has, he has a lot of, he's smart, he's clever, but he actually has a conscience that doesn't feel like put upon. Like, I feel like oftentimes in movies with wishes, you're like, the conscience is brought up by like, well, if you do this, then this is the consequence. You know, like we often are viewed with like wishes as being like, well, there's one good side to it, no bad side to it. There's no bad side to these wishes. There's only three, which he really only uses one. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, because one is forced on him and the third is is not for him. But I do feel like he's a good-hearted character, kind, smart, and wise. I wouldn't say he has a journey, like an arc, but 
I don't think you need it. And I don't think I miss it. Like he's a vessel of just, hey, he got lucky. He won the lotto. Now, how does that affect him? And and he has, still carries all these other things with him. I mean, I found this really interesting revisiting Aladdin in the wake of Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid, where he is another character who appears to be one thing. The world sees him as one thing because of what he looks like. And the internal conflict for him is like, but I'm actually this, like who I am on the outside doesn't define who I am. And that is so much part of several characters in Beauty and the Beast. We talked a lot about Gaston and the Beast as these kind of two opposing ideas of masculinity and Ariel as well, who is living one life but wants another life for herself and sees herself in another place. And Aladdin felt like he really fit into that, but is also a very rare adult-ish man lead in a Disney movie. Often we have princesses or the male leads are like, it's a small fox and a small dog who you're going to cry when they hate each other. Uh, This is a grown-ass man, pretty much. That's very different for Disney at this point. Yeah, he's a a diamond in the rough. As they say a million times. (laughs) That's like my number one black mark against this movie. I think diamond (laughs) in the rough, it's a lame phrase. It's like Uh, such a cliche, but like the idea that it's part of the prophecy, the idea that like the giant stone tiger is saying like a diamond in the rough like what (laughs) what what is that what kind of prophecy is that that's rubbish um that's like something my grandma would say you know it's 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 poor but it does describe the character i think if he has an arc it's not about becoming a better person it's about learning to like himself and learning to believe that other people like him and that he doesn't have to be prince ali he can be like regular aladdin because regular aladdin is a good guy but like who that character is the basic aladdin like you're saying paul doesn't change from this initial sequence where he's given the bread to the kids yeah and i think that you know it's an interesting character because disney has this ability to sometimes make their lead characters flatter than, especially in this era, flatter than the characters that surround them. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's the typical straight man idea of like what comedy is, or they are on the journey. They are us. You know, we are Belle. We are Aladdin. And it's interesting because I think that that works in a way. But, you know, when you think about Aladdin, I don't, my head doesn't go to Aladdin. I don't think about it. Like when I think back on Aladdin, I don't think of Aladdin the character. I think about a lot of other things around that movie. The songs, Robin Williams, Jafar, Iago, the voices, everything, you know, it's, but it's not like, oh my gosh, I love this character. It's an odd thing to have these hugely successful franchises where the characters are just a kind of placeholders, you know, or they are one thing, diamond in the rough. Got it. Go ahead, you know, move forward. It's like maybe it's old fairy tale storytelling technique, too. It's like we don't need to spend that much time there. We'll spend more time on all the other stuff. You can envision yourself as this character. And what would you do? And what would you say? Yeah, I mean, that's why Walt Disney chose like simple fairy tales like Snow White and Cinderella to work with, like partly because they're stories that everybody knows already. So you can just focus on the animation and what's happening in front of you. And I think that works in terms of like the flatness of the characters as well like everything is really simple apart from the stuff that's really cool and complex which is the animation in this case the comedy i mean i will say from a starting point of the early disney movies having some of the like blankest no character there characters <laughs> of any of these films i appreciated there was a little bit more going on in aladdin like i like how especially at the beginning he's a bit of a schmoozer he's a bit of a charmer and a chancer and we right. get a sense of he's become that because of 
the life that he's had to lead. I think this song at the beginning is like such a swift way of just getting us up to speed on exactly who this guy is. And as you say, Paul, towing that line really carefully between like, yes, he's having to steal stuff, but he's not a bad guy. He has to steal everything and he gives right. it to the kids. I was obsessed with that bread as a kid, by the way, as well. Oh my gosh, like, doesn't that was amazing. You so wanted good? that bread. Yeah, I mean, it looks so good. It's like raised bread mm. from uh, the Star Wars movie where she's making that uh, that bread in the uh, the, the old ad So tasty. And I mean, and then you also have, and this is also this world of the fun little sidekick too. I mean, everyone's got a little... A little animal that is jumping around with them, too. And I think that that animal does a great job in this to not humanize him, but it just becomes like he becomes less alone because he has this psychic. A thought that's just occurred to me. Are you guys aware of his dark materials? as a thing those fancy novels the, oh yeah. yeah love those. right yeah my microphone is balanced on a philip pullman yes. book i have not read it oh, wow. um, but oh. my partner is obsessed with them so i've watched the tv show at least i have not seen the tv show the book the is books great. are amazing and uh th- this kind of central idea that every character has a demon who is part of their soul who appears externally as an animal and you've just got me thinking that aladdin has abu jasmine has raja Jafar has Iago, and these are all these characters' demons. Like, we have the characters as they appear to us, the human characters, but what those characters Mm -hmm. are actually doing, like, Aladdin is the kind of hapless Abu. Jasmine has Mm -hmm. this, like, tiger inside her, and Jafar (laughs) has a demon who constantly, we'll get to this when we talk about Jafar properly, but constantly it's just like, hey, we're straight up evil, and we're fine with that. I love that these, kind of, everybody gets a sidekick. I do like that idea that these animals are a personification of these characters. And I think, you know, it's interesting because Raja and Jasmine, I don't think of them as separate because you think of them as a unit. Like these are the units that are all meeting each other and they do work in tandem really well together. But it is interesting. And I think, you know, we run up against this problem all the time. Can you make Home Alone now in a time of this time? No, absolutely not. And we've shown that you can't make Home Alone now as they did do the remake. Oh, it's too mean. You can't have a kid being scared. But here... We were in that period before maybe the 2000s where you stopped putting people in danger or making things dangerous. Like, you know, and I and I feel like this is a fun character. I think that you connect more to characters that aren't perfect. Like, even though in his mind, like he's a smart, conscientious person, but there's a little bit of him that is a rebel. There's a little bit of him as a troublemaker. There's a something, you know, there's something about him that is a little anti-authority. And we don't often get that a lot in our newer films. The biggest example is Despicable Me, you know, I'm talking about kids films, where it's like, hey, are you evil? I guess. I mean, it's a very lax evil. You know, it's not like a, uh, it's not like I don't feel like they're evil. It's like you're saying you want to be a bad guy, and I guess you are. I, I don't know, you know. <laughs> I mean, so let's talk about, it feels like so much of Aladdin's arc here, his story and his character is about how he interacts with Jasmine, because the love story in this is so central to the rest of the narrative of this film. Kind of like Beauty and the Beast. I don't know, we've had some Disney stuff where, especially some of the early princess films, it's like, here's the plot, but then also, whoop, in comes the prince at the end and go off together. Yes. Whereas in these films, the romance and spending time with these characters together is a big part of that. So what do you guys make of the Aladdin-Jasmine connection? Because to me, that chemistry felt really real. I massively felt that these guys were super into each other straight away. Well, they almost kiss within minutes of meeting each other, uh, which is great. You know, for me, this is one of those movies where you really feel like he's not in love 
with the idea of her. He's in love with her. It makes it way more fulfilling to watch because he did meet her. He did have a connection with her. He wasn't trying to be like, oh, I want to be a prince so I can marry a princess and I want to have money. He really just connected with this person. They both had, you know, for whatever that two minute scene is, shared interests and they were ready to go off. But that romance is solid or at least more solid than often seen in these movies. Because I think a lot of the times we're like, oh, she's beautiful. And you've never talked to her. Like, I'm in love. And I love that, you know, when we get to the genie too, but like one of the genie's wishes is like, I can't make you fall in love with anybody. I love like in those ways, it's like, well, that's smart. Like took away some of the the things that we know. And, and he's not trying to fall in love with her. He's just trying to do what he thinks he can to be worthy of her, which is a different thing. It wasn't like, I need to change my personality. I mean, he does try, but realizes he doesn't have to. But that idea, like, that's the only reason why he's making these wishes is just to be like, oh, how can I see her again? What's the best way I can see her again? It's very earnest and very based. And I think in a, in the way that relationships should work, that you like the person instead of just what they look like or what they represent. Yeah, I think as well from like the other perspective, it's cool that like she falls in love with him twice. Yes. We've had these previous like movies where the princess barely meets the prince and they just fall in love. But in this, she falls in love with Aladdin and then she hates Prince Ali and still falls in love with Prince Ali on the magic carpet in this like other persona. And I just think that's a smart way of showing that, okay, they still haven't spent a lot of time together because we don't have a lot of time in this movie to do that because there's a lot of other stuff going on. But these people do work as a couple. Like There's something intrinsic about him that attracts her so that no matter how you mask it, no matter how he presents himself, Self, the diamond if you will shines through yeah and she sees that and she falls for that how great as well that line of dialogue that is so economic and it is not the obvious dialogue choice but the repetition of do you trust me and the way that he asks that to her and the way that she receives that again was part of it for me where i'm like i just feel this this is real. it's not like it's not like do you love me or it's not like hey can i take you so like just that simple question do you trust me? It had a little ring of, I love you, I know about it, in that exchange of like, that's just a Mm. cool way of these two people establishing an actual connection together. And she, both times, like she's kind of tentative to answer, but it comes from a place of, yeah, I do. And you feel in that small hesitation from her. I just love those exchanges, both of them with Aladdin and when he's Prince Ali. But Sam, we've talked a lot in these last couple of episodes about Disney princesses. We talked a lot about Ariel and maybe the flattening of uh, people's perceptions of Ariel. She gives up a voice for the man and maybe there's more to it than that. Again with Belle that, yes, she does fall in love with the beast who puts her away in a cage. But again, there's kind of more to it than that and there's more complex characterization. Where does Jasmine sit for you as a, as a 90s Disney princess? Because she, again... Well, she's a princess who for once doesn't want domesticity, even though in typical 90s Disney style, she kind of eventually gets there. Yeah, everybody in these movies just settles down in like the typical domestic lifestyle by the end of the movie. Although Aladdin the series, we have some more adventures in the cartoon as it goes on. But uh, yeah, Jasmine, Jasmine's interesting because she, I think, is the only like official mainline Disney princess who doesn't have her own movie that's about Jasmine. She is always going to be this satellite character to Aladdin's story or this reflection of his desires, even if 
yeah, I think I agree with what you're saying, Paul. It's not that he's just in love with, like, wealth and she's the cipher for that, but she is there to, like, reflect his desires and be an object for him to pursue. But as a character in herself, she does have that feistiness, which feels like a very gendered term, but, like, that feistiness that these... 90s Disney princesses are developing and she has this goal of her own which is to not be seen as a prize to be married away which is you know what's initially expected of her so that's kind of a gesture towards feminism as well but I think it's it's tricky to really talk about Jasmine as a character because there isn't a whole load to deal with outside of her interactions with Aladdin which is something they expand upon in the remake to varying degrees of success. And, you know, I'll I'll just say something here, too. You could argue this film is very light on plot. I mean, really, when you look at the construction of it, there's not much there there. I mean, like, you know, it it doesn't take many twists and turns. It's A to B to C, and, and it works. And I think that there is an argument to be made. Like, in a classic fairy tale, we just want to see the story take its natural toll we have an antagonist he has some obstacles you know he overcomes the obstacles he gets the goal end of story so i do think in this even with the extra time we spend with aladdin we don't see that much more of him right that that we're not seeing with jasmine jasmine what we're seeing is you know i think she's got that i that stereotypical idea like she wants to get out of the castle she wants to be with the people she does care about people she wants more than that provincial life that's from beauty and the beast but it's like but like she wants she wants the other version of it but we get her and i think aladdin is what we see with him is wrestling with this unknown entity which is i have this genie but the story is very much like they meet they're separated they meet again they fall in love will they make it out and they do and that's the end it's a very very simple idea so it's it is hard i think to make those characters have a lot more to do because there's not even space for it yeah i at least appreciated that she has that moment where under her own steam in her own plot line she's like i'm escaping the castle i'm not waiting for aladdin to get me yes. out of the castle or someone else to get me out of the castle i'm just gone <laughs> and it's the other kind of machinations of the plot that mean that she ends up obviously back in the palace don't you think that we live in these movies sometimes where people like do the same thing like 10 times like we saw it yeah, she wanted to get out in front of the thing. She did it. We saw that. Like, And I feel like other movies, like, we got to really drill that in. Let's have her go out of the castle one more time. It's like, <laughs> well, we already, we got it. Well, maybe ride the carpet one more time and then have another love song. It's like, no, we don't need it. Like, that way we got it. It's done. These Disney movies, man, they are swift. They move. They're like, right, we've said it. We've done yeah. it. We're on. 88 minutes. Thank you. See you later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> The other thing with uh, Jasmine as well is, very briefly, I just want to say, Roger, I love Roger so much. He's so cuddly mm. and he's so big, and but he's like he's a fierce protector when she needs him to be. Paul, we have something on the show called Disneyversity Legends, when we pick out obscure Disney characters from the backgrounds of scenes or who have been forgotten by the, the winds of time, uh, and mm. we celebrate them. Now, I think Roger is too well-known and too popular oh, yeah, to be say, yeah. a Disneyversity legend. But if he wasn't as famous as he was, Roger would, I think, be in contention because he's just, I just loved him. He's just a cool guy. That's the problem with these 90s movies. Even the minor characters are iconic because the films themselves are so iconic. I've got one, though. Okay. I've got a Disneyversity legend. Oh, you want to save that? Okay. Oh, no, let's do it now. Let's put me out of my misery because you texted me yesterday and said, oh, I think I've got the nichest Disneyversity legend of the show yet. So I've been stewing over who this might be. I, I need you to Ooh, let me I know. Love this. So it is a character who appears for maybe three seconds wow. and it's the horny flamingo 
who has the eyes for Classic. Iago yes. when he's pretending to be a flamingo. He's doing Princess <laughs> Jasmine's voice. Absolutely pitch perfect impression of Princess Jasmine. And he's on those stilts. There's like this really dumb goo flamingo <laughs> who just makes these big goo goo eyes. Yeah. And then he just has one line of dialogue and it's goo. And then Iago like <laughs> knocks the legs out from under him and says something to the effect of like, What are you looking at, Pinky? And it's like, Oh, cool. I'm calling him Pinky. Yeah. I've decided that's okay. his name. And it's, he's this really dumbass <laughs> flamingo. I like it. I'm behind that. Yeah, I love that guy. Uh, and especially just the combination of a fake Iago uh, flamingo plus Jasmine's voice. That This is what this flamingo has been waiting for. They're like two seconds of that. And he's like, I'm in love. This is it. This is what I want from my life. Uh, I felt for that guy. I felt for Pinky. Okay, well, should we make it official? Paul, what we've got to do to make it official is do the uh, Disney Versity Legends fanfare, which goes something like this. And say Pinky has entered the Legends canon. Wow, I'm happy to be here for that moment. (laughs) I I really feel like I've experienced this in in a real way. And I I feel like this character does deserve it. And why aren't we doing a spinoff? Why aren't we doing a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of this character? Like, let's get in there. Let's get the Pinky story going. See where where it's been. Yeah, the Pinky storyline. You know, now, meanwhile, I, you know, I I was going to make a strong case for the elephant that uh, Aladdin runs in on, uh, which is, but, but that is Abu, I guess. So I guess it can't really be. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Can we count it separately or is it just a different iteration of Abu? These are issues, complex issues. These are very complex issues. You know, look, if you go on the Funko website, you're going to see an elephant, Abu. <laughs> but it's like, but is it Abu? I mean, and then then you'd open up all the versions of Robin Williams' characters. A lot of morphing going on in this movie. Uh, some may even say too much morphing. So, you know, uh, there's multiple characters, multiple moments we get to see here. But wow, wow, wow. I like what we've picked. I think that Flamingo is definitely not somebody else. And that's probably the most important part. <laughs> Horny flamingo, pinky, you're in. You're in our hearts forever. Okay, well, it's almost time to talk about the genie. But before we can talk about the genie properly, we have to talk about the thing that gets us there, which is Aladdin. This is really the crux of the adventure story. Aladdin having to go into the Cave of Wonders under Jafar's orders to go and get the lamp. Obviously, Jafar disguising himself as a creepy old man. And there is so much happening in this cave sequence. It is a chase sequence. It is like a big adventure moment that to me felt almost kind of partway between the minecart scene from Temple of Doom, but also a little bit of the scene with the Balrog in Fellowship of the Ring, just with the red and the colors and the caverns underground. It feels so huge, this sequence, and gives us a lot more of the 3D animation that is really kind of paving its way into this era of the Disney canon. You know, just to comment on one thing there, re-watching it on Disney Plus, it looks great. Yeah. Like, I really uh, appreciated this film, and I don't know if they have done remasterings of it, but it really pops more than I remember it looking. It really holds up. Sam, I mean, what sort of techniques were they using here? Because this is an, it feels like an even additional level of 3D to the groundbreaking moments that we had in Beauty and the Beast. 
I mean, I should really say first off, I don't like it very much. Really? Do you not oh, like the wow. sequence? I, wow. I, I, I like the sequence. It's well staged and everything. I think the CGI on the cave, on the CGI on the tiger heads, the actual physical cave itself, I think that's cool. When it like dissolves back into sand, I think that looks really good. But in the flying sequence through like these like stone corridors, I think that's the first time for me in these movies where the CGI does look a little bit like PlayStation-y. It just feels a bit much like a video game and yeah it doesn't quite fit with the 2d animation Ooh, controversial what they absolutely nail is the carpet because the carpet is the first digital character they animated it by hand yes but then the patterns are like texture mapped onto the carpet and it looks really cool and it looks like otherworldly which is what it's supposed to look like it looks like it comes from a different place to these 2d characters so does the tiger the cave of wonders and similar to the ballroom scene in beauty and the beast it's meant to inspire a sense of awe like yeah a lot of the reasons why they're using cgi for some of these sequences is because they're animating something too complex to do by hand but i think it also like seeing something that stands out so vividly against everything else can be used rhetorically as well like we see the cave of wonders and we think oh my god that looks like scary and cool and different and supernatural and that's because it does stand out against its surroundings yeah i mean the the patterning on the uh, magic carpet is a mind-bending thing the way that that pattern kind of stretches and distorts as the carpet's creeping around i also love the carpet when they first come across it in the cave and it starts like creeping towards them on his little tassel feet great acting in the animation there in how they kind of personify this object how they kind of anthropomorphize a carpet and turn it into a man while it's still being a carpet is kind of genius <laughs> but if we're going to talk about incredible animation that is blending somebody being partly human partly not human let's finally talk about the genie let's talk about robin williams and what he does in this movie and let's especially talk about friend like me because i'm gonna throw something out here and say that i think friend like me in particular is the apex of everything that disney has done so far like everything all the movies we've talked about has led up to this point where we have this sequence we have this song that has the kind of no rules trippiness of pink elephants on parade it has the musicality of those early disney shorts it has the kind of impressive shape-shifting stuff of Madame Mim from Sword in the Stone. It has that kind of Broadway excellence of, of Mencken and Ashman. It has the jazzy exuberance of Everybody Wants to Be a Cat from the Aristocats. Oh, it has yeah. that kind of nowhere reality of bits of Be Our Guest where it's like, okay, some scenes we're like literally in the scene with the characters, but then we're not beholden to the laws of physics. We can just go to this nowhere place where this musical sequence is happening. And I felt all of this in these couple of minutes friend like me it's the culmination of every film we've talked about so far sam paul what do you think you know for me it is not only a great song but this is our introduction to robin williams right this is our real true introduction to this character that is now going to be forever cemented in our like this is it this is the coming out moment and it not only shows off Robin Williams' performance, but it's backed by this great song. Like you get to see the same way that the bread song 
sets up our character. We get to see everything that we're going to eventually see with this genie, like how it's going to change. I'm going to call it the bread song forever, by the way. It's, it's going down as the bread song now. Bread song. And, you know, it's like, but you get to see that same idea of like, okay, now we're in this magical world. And even though the world has been magical, like this character can do anything. We're at least in like Beauty and the Beast and other Disney movies. Those songs, like you said, like the reality can be a little curvy, but here the reality that Robin Williams creates is actually the reality, even though he's curvy, if that makes sense, right? Like, it's like, yes, you're seeing it differently, but he created it. Aladdin's seeing it differently too. Yes, exactly. It's like, he's creating the world around him. He has all this power. That's what's really fun about it is like, it's a music video in which the reality is created by the the singer in a way. He's the perfect animated character because he has this, phenomenal cosmic power like he can look like anything he wants he can also reference anything he wants like this is the first disney movie where we're getting this density of really overt references to popular culture that completely jar with the context of the movie but we're not asking questions about how does the genie know who jack nicholson is or whatever (laughs) because he's the genie he presumably exists like outside time and space and it rationalizes these issues that Disney has been trying to avoid in these movies. In a Warner Brothers cartoon, in a Looney Tunes cartoon, you can do what you want because no one expects us to really care about these characters or invest in the integrity of these fictional worlds because it's just a crazy cartoon. Whereas Disney, ever since Snow White, has been trying to get audiences to invest in these worlds for like 90 minutes, believe in the characters, cry, you know, be scared for these characters. So they've had to keep not just the visual animation fairly believable, but also the worlds. And the genie, it lets us break that. Because we've got this literal character who is inherently supernatural and all-knowing, we can completely shatter the reality of the movie just for this movie. And that's what the genie allows us to do. And he, you know, he can make these pop culture references like a Looney Tunes cartoon. He looks a lot like a Fleischer Brothers cartoon. Like, he can morph like a character in a, in a Betty Boop cartoon can. And it's interesting. This song is, I think, very inspired by, like, Cab Calloway-style jazz numbers. He shifts into a Cab Calloway-like character for a while. And Cab Calloway co-starred with Betty Boop in a lot of these, like, really seminal, strange, metamorphic cartoons where reality can be anything you want it to and where the animation's really fluid and constantly changing and transforming. So I think it's an interesting through line that it draws back to some of its inspirations by having these Cab Calloway references and these this, like, kind of jazzy song because a lot of those old cartoons drew so much inspiration from jazz music as well. Do we have a favourite crazy genie moment, either from this song or from the rest of the film? Because for me, it has to be, right, big genie head, the tongue lolls out of the genie face, turns into a staircase, and then the genie walks down his own tongue? It's amazing. Oh, I love that. I mean, those, when you say that, it sounds insane, but in the moment, it feels, buy it. Like, you don't question it. Yeah. It's like, sure. It's interesting how much they get away with because you're just kind of, I, I think that you're just entranced with him. And I think that that's part of, like, the fun of this character is that I think you're feeling like Aladdin here. It's like, what? you don't even know what to look at. You know, for me, that that's what I really... I don't know. I just kind of like and rewatching it. And again, watching it with my son, who's watching it for the first time and watching him just kind of go bonkers over it was great. You know, to me, it's always going to be Jack Nicholson 
that no kid is going to get now. But I'd still love that they get him to look like Jack Nicholson. Do they even give him like a little bit of like a, a weird hair piece in that too? I feel like <laughs> yeah, already... he's got the hair. Yeah, it's the impressions, it's the pop culture stuff that really stands out for me. Most of my academic work is writing about the way intertextuality works in animated movies. So this is like a big movie for me. And this is actually the first movie that we've looked at on this podcast that I have published academic work on. Wow. And I wrote a chapter for the Oxford Handbook of Children's Film about references to adult-oriented texts in children's movies and this is like kind of the core of it and it's exactly what you're talking about paul it's this idea that the character is already so bizarre and strange and kinetic and just inherently funny in the performance of robin williams in the performance of eric goldberg that a kid can just watch it and enjoy it but yes the stuff that's there for adults even though it's really specific even though that cannot be read as anything other than jack nicholson's big cartoon head it doesn't matter that the kids don't get it because it's embedded in this character within whom it makes sense. Right, because he's doing a bunch of different things. So if he's doing a reference, even some of the references I don't get in this, it you know, to an old game show or things like that, it's like they're still funny voices, right? Yeah. Like they are these fully characters. Like my kid is laughing at that. And I think it's only because it's not just a joke for a joke's sake. Now, what I will say and not again, I don't want to, you know, Sam, I don't want to step on your toes here, but I'll say like sometimes Shrek will have those jokes that are jokes. They're just going over your head. If you don't get it here, the jokes are embraced. So they're next to the joke of, so here's Jack Nicholson's head, but then here's two hands kind of walking in step and the genie's walking in between them. And so I'm seeing something visually that's funny in character. I'm seeing him head like he's constantly morphing. So everything feels of the same level of uh, intent and you're laughing at it all it's like it's all part of the show yeah it's funny anyway like there's something that animation does and i think like it works with kids subconsciously as well when we watch an animated film because it's not real because it doesn't look anything like our world we have to like build a hypothesis like subconsciously about how this world works and aladdin gives us this hypothesis of how the world works before the genie turns up like it's a pretty realistic movie in terms of like the way the world works and the way the characters move and everything like that and then you bring the genie in who instantly subverts that but also because he's tapping into these earlier forms of animation and these like the comedy of looting tunes and stuff like that we are already familiar with like how cartoon logic works so we adjust our hypothesis to be like oh okay this guy can do anything so if you're not laughing at one thing you're laughing at another and everything that he does like you say is funny even if you don't get the caricature now sam we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the beginning that moment where the camera zooms in on the bizarre seller's face you know robin williams and you said oh that wasn't scripted now i had always heard that that opening was completely improvised, but they often gave like Robin Williams props in the room. Like the broken hookah actually was like a prop that he had and he actually broke it in the middle of recording and that became like part of the movie. How much of that is going on? And now obviously that's a song, but you can't do that in a song, but like how much is he infusing those choices or those like working with props? Like I got to do a voice for The Incredibles, uh, which is super fun. And you're really working, but very rarely in all the voices that I've done, I never am working with like props in the room or, or seeing things in the room. Like, you know, what do you, what do you know about this and how he's like manipulating the environment that then kind of comes into the movie? Just to jump in, what voice did you do in the Incredibles, Paul? I hadn't heard about that. So I was in the uh, sequel to the Incredibles. I was cut out. Right. I was interrogating the kids. The, my animatic and scene is on the 
DVD or special features on Disney yeah. Plus. Uh, I play I play a guy who looks a little bit like Conan O'Brien, but it was amazing to get to work with Brad Bird and watch him work and the exactingness of what he wants to do. And I've worked with so many great. I, I'm on a, a Disney show right now called uh, Big City Greens. I mean, that was a thrill of thrills to go in there and record that. And then when it was cut, I was oh. like, oh. but at least I got to see the animatic of it. I think what they decided was it was taking a little bit too long to get to the actual plot of the movie. Cause it's right after the opening scene where the family is being interrogated. And then on top of that, uh, what I remember hearing was they thought it was a little rough for me to be interrogating children. <laughs> I'm pretty rough. I'm pretty rough with the kids right out of the gate. There you go. You're saying you can't do the dangerous stuff anymore. You can't have that element yeah, of I danger know. There it these is. days. But I was hopping I in. I needed to know that, Sam. Please provide oh, answers yeah. on Robin Williams. Uh, yeah, so basically, I don't know if props were used outside of that opening scene, but that's obviously very tailored to what he's doing in that scene and all of the dialogue he delivers around those props is improvised. And in the genie sequences, it's like he has a script... But the way he delivers every line and anything that he wants to add, he is able to do. And they're just doing so many takes of everything. And there was hours and hours and hours of audio. I think they basically cut together bits of audio from sometimes like takes that he did maybe even on different days to match like lines together, you know? They would take what they thought was funny, they would take what Goldberg had a good idea for, like how can we visualise this? One of his first lines is like, the ever-impressive, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it's like the whole, I can't remember that whole monologue, but like every single sentence in that monologue gets into a little box, and then he says like, after an imitated, and it's a ventriloquist, and it's like every single line is delivering it in a different way, and then Goldberg is matching them. But yeah, a lot of those takes are like stitched together from maybe even different sessions while he just runs these lines over and over again. But it's so interesting because it's like the idea of like being in a box and everything like that. I guess what I'm realizing is as somebody who's done animation before, like to go in and going like, we'll animate this around you. We'll put a box, we'll put you in a box. We'll do this. Like I was curious if they're like, Oh, okay, we're going to do a thing where we want you to be like a gene. We want you to be like in a box. If they're giving him ideas because some of the stuff seems so animator driven even though it's also so voice driven, like, yes, Jack Nicholson turns into that. But then there are other parts that, you know, it just seems like hats off to the editor. That's all I have to say. Yeah, the voice yeah. editor, Right. I mean, that that's really what it comes down to is finding those moments to to craft this thing, because it does look like the animation is leading the voice acting or as if he is in a room with a bunch of props and stuff like that. I mean, that is like the genius of this guy, Eric Goldberg, who really didn't do that many Disney movies. He came from doing like commercials in London and they brought him in for this and he just has he just matches Robin Williams perfectly and when I talk about animated performances I always have to remind people that like it's a consummate performance there is a voice but of course there is also the visuals everything that you see on screen is a type of performance it's just from an an artist not a not an actor and I think Goldberg's performance in this is just as impressive as Robin Williams is because he matches them and like you say there's some stuff where maybe Williams isn't doing it in a way that necessarily suggests something visual so Goldberg will bring something visual in that he thinks matches it. And it's the, the kind of had be a little bit simpatico, but there's a lot of credit needs to go to Goldberg here, I think, yeah. Well, if we're talking about the characters and the songs that define this movie, A Friend Like Me is way up there, but we have to talk about A Whole New World. And I'm going to be totally honest here. For me, I don't think A Whole New World quite stood up in the way that I remember it doing. We are coming off the back of Beauty and the Beast where every song hit in a huge way and i feel like the hits in aladdin are massive friend like me as i said 
still think it's the culmination of Disney's entire kind of animated output so far. But A Whole New World, it is one of the big things that everyone remembers from this movie. It has a huge legacy, and I think the song is very good. But as a sequence, it didn't quite blow me away, and I don't quite know why. Do you guys get swept along in this song, or is this one that didn't quite catch you in the right way? I think it's my least favorite song in the movie. Wow, okay. Is that controversial? I think, you know, it was. It was the big hit. It won the Grammy for Song of the Year. Just Song oh, wow. of the Year. No movie, no nothing. Just, it is was the, the most popular song of the year. That is, obviously it won the Oscar as well, but like the Grammy for Song of the Year, that is crazy. Like this was a pop hit and it feels like a pop hit in a way that those other ones don't it feels like like i have a real issue with a lot of musicals like the greatest showman is a musical i just can't enjoy because those songs don't sound like they belong in the world of that movie they just sound like pop songs and i think this is the only song from aladdin that sounds like that and it's a tim rice song it's not a howard ashman lyric there's a little bit of corniness to the lyrics that ashman might not have put in there but, you know, Alan Menken did the music, and Alan Menken did the music for, like, Beauty and the Beast from Beauty and the Beast, which works really well. And, yeah, there's just something about this that just feels a little bit less... It feels a little bit more of its time, a little bit more like it's from the, the pop charts of 1992. But, I mean, it works in the movie. Paul, I'm interested to know what you think. Yeah, you know, to me, as a teenager seeing it, this is the romance song. You're like, okay, all right, you know, that's, <laughs> that, that's the track I'm going to fast forward. I think there's something really catchy and you're right poppy about it right and i would say it's the performance or at least the arc of these two main characters that actually make it work because it really is like you can see people getting married to this song like it's this idea that like you know i want to explore everything with you we want to go out and like you know he's a diamond in the rough and she's going out into this world which is this you know, shining a diamond in the, you know, like the, 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 the city outside the castle wall is a diamond. And, you know, it's like you know, this idea, like we're doing this together. We're exploring together. We're going to journey together. So I see simplicity <laughs> is key. You know, we don't need metaphor. We, we want to just be like, I got it. I love you. And this is great. I want to do this. You know, so there is, there is like an element to it. That's like a great, dumb, simple love song. And, and while it's not my favorite, I can say that it's singable. It feels to me akin to the um, Superman song, the Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, like, can you read my mind? You know, it's very akin to that. Uh, I don't know if that's a great song, but it's a great sequence all put together. It just connects me to these characters. When you said earlier, what's interesting about this movie is that Jasmine falls in love with Aladdin twice. This is the second time, right? And so you need it. So it does work. Character-wise, it's perfectly put. Yeah, It's not just a song for a song's sake. And I do appreciate this movie for being so lean, but also not beating us over the head. Like, it comes in the right spot. It's not the third love song. You know, it's it's the only... It's really the only one, you know. Um, and look, it's a great karaoke song, and I recommend you all to sing it over the holidays. I mean, <laughs> you got a karaoke machine, and that's my go-to lately. That has been a good I'm one. I'm not going to say who it is. But somebody, Sam joined them, but somebody sung this at my stag do at karaoke. Oh, wow. There was a previous guest on this podcast. Oh, my gosh. Uh, who I wouldn't have picked in a million years to have put this on the karaoke list. And I instinctively handed a microphone to Sam, like, Sam, you'll have put this Disney song on the karaoke machine. Uh, it, was, it was somebody else. Um, and it was honestly stunning. It was beautiful. It was a, a wonderful moment. 
I, I kind of picked it up as Jasmine when I needed to. By the way, it's great like that. I Yeah. yeah. It, it's funny how well, I guess, how well you know the song. Like, that's what I was surprised at. When it came on karaoke, I was like, I'm going to try this as a joke. And I was like, I'm not a singer, but I know how to hit those beats. I know the song's rhythms yeah. enough. It, that you can jump in there as Jasmine and, and, and Aladdin. It's a beautiful duo song. The one thing I did appreciate about this number that I'd kind of forgotten going in is we touched a little bit on the fact that, look, Jasmine has a desire in this film that she just wants to escape from the life that she feels like she's trapped in. She wants to get out of the palace. She wants to go and live with normal people. And the A Whole New World, it is a love song, but it kind of starts as a song just about wanting to get out into the world and about someone like offering you the one thing that you've always wanted or giving you a new space that opens up to allow you to fall in love. I feel like it's a song about more than just a basic love song. It has a little bit more of like it's tapping into Jasmine's desire to go out and see the world and this person who rocks up who has a magic carpet. I mean, what a romantic flex just to be like, hop on the carpet and off we go this experience of somebody turning up and being like this isn't about us but me as a person who can then show you the world that you've always wanted to see opens up a space that she can fall in love with him in it felt like that to me when i was watching it this time i think that's why she falls in love with him twice because both versions of aladdin represent an escape for her but i think what shows that much like aladdin she doesn't just love the idea of him is that she doesn't mind what that is she can you know escape with this street rat onto the streets of agrabah or she can escape with this prince to like egypt and greece and wherever they they go on their magic carpet so i think that's you know that's what he represents to her but it's not all that he represents to her and it's yeah it shows that she loves him as well as what he represents so i mean this has gone down as an all-time classic disney love song if we're talking about classic disney elements here we have to talk about jafar uh because he has gone down rightly so i think as a classic disney villain he feels very much in i don't buy it are you not a jafar fan (laughs) i don't care for him i think he is i like i was thinking about this i was like to me in the world of villains the least interesting one Right. Like, like, you know, because he he's not as good as Scar, mm-hmm. right? He's not as good as Gaston. And I mean, not that Gaston's a good trip, you know, villain, villain, but he but he is, you know, there is no fun to him and there is no real life. Now, maybe that's just because you are against Robin Williams and the movie is so big. But that's going back to what I was saying originally about this movie. This movie doesn't really try to do that much everyone else like besides Gilbert Godfrey you know as his like personality like Gilbert Godfrey takes away from the villainy of Jafar but Jafar is just mustache twirly like it's not much there he's cool looking but maybe that's why I'm thinking oh the Jafar scenes are so fun and it's not Jafar it's because Iago Gilbert Godfrey is just absolutely going for it and bringing so many of the laughs in this movie away from the Robin Williams space if Robin Williams wasn't in this movie, this would have gone down as a legendary Gilbert Gottfried performance, I think. I really, really like what he does with Iago. Some of my biggest laughs in the movie are from Iago. I really love. And I apologise that I keep doing a Gilbert Gottfried impression because nobody yeah. needs that, but also that's the only way to deliver these lines. <laughs> I really like, what a surprise! I almost had a heart attack and died from the 
that surprised. Uh, That's a great line. He's so sarcastic. He does a not joke at some point. He does the like, <laughs> nah. yeah. excellent judge of character. Not. <laughs> it's like such a throwback. There's the bit where they've got to leave the palace and they're packing up and he's like, oh, we're going to take all the knives and all the swords. And there's this picture of us. Should we take that? I don't know. I don't think I look good in that one. <laughs> it's just these really good. I think a lot of these lines are improvised as well. So I think like credit to Gilbert. I think that like one of the best things about Robin Williams being in this is it opens the door for Gilbert, who has his own point of view and is improvising. It actually, I think, makes this movie pop more. Those two characters are basically outside of the realm of a normal Disney movie. They are id that are freely running around. And I don't think you can really talk about that on any besides Inside Out, you know, which is Pixar, but you don't really see that. I think they pop more. So it's like he's overshadowed literally by a bird on his shoulder. You know, and and it's funny because when you look at the other two uh, Golden Compass spirit animals that we have here, the you know their companions are mute. They're you know they're like they are just animals. But he talks for no reason. Again, like why? Like, and I almost wonder if I could be totally wrong, and I probably am. And Samuel, tell me, I could see them going. Our villain is turning flat off of Robin Williams. We need to like dress it up. So let's give him the bird over here to just add something to his character it, it, because the bird is 90% him. Yeah. I like the bird more. Yeah. And it works. I think most of the stuff that I like about Jafar is in his back and forth of the Argo. I think they work really well because he's, there's a little bit of this, but it's not just like, you're my lackey and I am an abusive kind of master. Mm-hmm. They seem to like genuinely like each other and they get on really well and they like having a good laugh together and half the evil plans are Iago's and they just seem like if they weren't hatching evil plans, they'd still be having a good crack on, maybe doing a podcast, something like that, <laughs> like typical friend things. I think, I like watching just bros. I think there are a couple of bros. The sequels uh, do away with that in a way that upsets me but I like those two as a, as a parent. But yeah, without yeah. Iago, what is Jafar? Not much. Not much. And like, Jafar's a creep. I mean, ultimately, what, he wants to marry a 16-year-old girl? <laughs> yeah. Not cool, man. Not cool. Uh, yeah, not cool, right? Uh, read the room. His character's so kind of benign, you know, and what he does or how he acts, his evil plans aren't even that evil. Like, and he also, you know, he shows this guy kind of bigger magic at one point that it just, to me... I'm not excited if I see Jafar walking around Walt Disney World. You know, it's like the reason why they wanted to make all these sequels to these movies was because of the genie and Robin Williams. And that's why. And they had, they won, they wound up going back to the well of Jafar like Jafar. It was like, well, we could get Jafar back here. Let's do that. And I know that they got like, what is it? Dan Castellaneta to come back and do Robin Williams. But it's like, I, no, <laughs> I'm not buying that he's in the pantheon of great villains, especially when you're going Gaston and Scar yeah. are the bookends here. No, nowhere, nowhere does he hold a candle. Scar is Jafar 2.0. Like, Scar is everything yes. good about Jafar, but just yes. a little bit better. More charismatic actor in Jeremy Irons. He gets an amazing song. Jafar, that's a big thing. I think that's a big reason why Jafar doesn't work that well compared to like Gaston or Scar or Ursula, his song is like tossed off. It's like a Tim Rice rewrite of Prince Ali, which is this great Howard Ashman song, and then Jafar gets kind of the poor man's version of that. And it's a silly song as well. It's not really threatening at all. And I think those songs, like Poor Unfortunate Souls, Be Prepared, the various numbers that Gaston gets 
in Beauty and the Beast put that to shame. And I think you need a good song if you're going to be a good Disney villain from this era. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, maybe any fondness I have for Jafar as well, Paul, you're saying he's not the character that you flock to when you see him in the parks. Up here... Uh, in my background. These are pictures from my childhood from when I was seven and I went to Disneyland Paris and one of these pictures is me with Jafar. So maybe that's why he holds an extra special place. And I will say, yeah, when I see him, I'm always impressed when I see an older character popping around the park. To me, it's a tricky movie because Gilbert Godfrey and Robin Williams run ragged over all of these characters. And I think a good villain will make you sympathize with them on some level. I think that that's why, you know, uh, Black Panther worked so well. And Scar, I understand where he's coming from. I understand, you know, what his issue is. Gaston is a misguided idiot. And he, you know, he's not a villain by trade, but I think he thinks he's doing the right thing by rescuing, you know, his bravado, his ego is overtaking his rational thinking in every sense. Here, this is just a bad guy from get from the get-go, wants money, wants to have this relationship. There's nothing that I sympathize with. And in my mind, I won't put him in my top Ooh. 10, even though I think that he often is in the top 10 because Aladdin is so successful. You go, oh, who's the villain in Aladdin? Oh, Jafar. Yeah, he's one of my top 10 villains. Really? Well, maybe we'll have to do a villain special at some point and duke this out. I would love it. Yeah. But I, I think I appreciate it at the end. I liked Snake Jafar. I liked Evil Genie Jafar. I like our villains who mm. kind of transform the same way that Ursula does at yes. the end of The Little Mermaid. But obviously, a Disney villain gets thwarted at the end. We get pretty much a happily ever after for Aladdin and Jasmine, who, despite the happy ending for Jasmine... Can I just say one thing to you? Can sure. I say one thing to you? I don't know if you have it, but you have AMC theaters there? No, you don't have uh, No, I think it's the same group as Cineworlds. All right, so AMC released a list of top 10 Disney villains. They don't even put Ursula on that what? list. And they got Jafar really? on Really? I mean... I mean, Maleficent on. has to be on there, right? Maleficent is on there. Oh yeah, Maleficent gets a high. I mean, like here, Professor Radigan from the Great Mouse oh. gets on that list. We love Professor Radigan. I mean, right? Come on, Ben's got to get his Radigan. <laughs> oh yes, I love is it. it. The vintage oh, Radigan beanbag has been brought out from where he lives, <laughs> hidden away. I love it so great. Okay, well, just before we close out on the film, then. I want to close on the same note that the film does with a little extra blast of the genie and just say genie's holiday outfit is an incredible thing. That co-ord, the the geometric shirt and shorts combo. It took me right back to Bermuda Merlin at the end of the sword and the stone. And again, honestly, Sam, I think that's an outfit you could pull off. I've seen you wear similar things in the summer holidays. I want to ask Paul might know this, you say you're a parks guy. Are you more a Disneyland Anaheim guy than an Orlando guy? No, I was an Orlando guy because I grew up on the East Coast. So now okay. I've become a little bit more of a, you know, I I, I, I swing both ways. <laughs> so do you recognize the outfit that Jeannie wears at the end of this from a, an earlier Disney World related production? Oh, wait a second. Oh. I don't think I do. It's an outfit that Robin Williams wore when he recorded a video for the Disney World Studio tour oh, in 1989. Oh, yes, 100% with if i'm right that famous newscatcher walter cronkite exactly correct ah look at that i did remember it yes okay great uh that's amazing your credentials have been restored as a parks guy yeah there it is they're back well by the way one of the interesting things uh about being in orlando a lot when i was a kid was the mgm studios had opened and mgm studios has now become hollywood studios and i'm sure it will become something else in just a little bit uh pixar studios but 
one of the cool things was you were, at least I was under the belief that you were actually watching the animators animate these films. So you were, you would walk in and you, they were behind one side of the glass and they were all working on hand-drawn animations and stuff like that. And there was a really nice connection to all that. I think it was all post Aladdin because Robin Williams was such a part of the, the community. Although I will say, while he didn't reprise the role of Aladdin, he did reprise it for Disney Quest, which was also in Orlando, which was a video game place in Pleasure Island where you paid like one price, like 25 bucks, and you could play every video game for free. And you would walk into an elevator and he would do a little show for you as you rode the elevator up to the top floor of Disney Quest. And I loved getting in that elevator because it was like a little extra deleted scene of Robin Williams describing how Disney Quest worked as the genie. Well, that is, I mean, I have got a list of Aladdin kind of parks related spinoffs that I'd love to get your opinions on as we get yes. to them, but that is one that I had not heard of. <laughs> All right, there you go. At least I brought something here. Should we continue our own Disney quest then? Should we get back to the final sections of the show? I can't wait to delve into all of the different Aladdin things across all the theme parks. Right then, we are touched back down from the Magic Carpet Ride, and that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the dark, weird stuff that didn't make the movie. Sam, there has got to be all sorts happening in 1001 Arabian Nights. What is the Aladdin story on the page? I mean, there's a thousand and one nights worth of of activity. (laughs) But actually, I do have to say, Aladdin isn't originally part of the oral versions of the Arabian Nights. It's something that was added later on by this French guy who did one of the first big translations, a guy called Antoine Galland. And he heard Aladdin from a visiting Syrian storyteller called Hannah Diab in 1709. And when he did his translation of The Thousand and One Nights, he reincorporated Aladdin into that, and that's why we think of it as an Arabian Nights story. For example, it's set, according to this written version, in China. Wow, okay. Well, so the original version was set in China? Yeah, there's not many references to it, and they still say things like Sultan, and they still talk a lot about like Islam. I mean, there were some Muslims in China, but it was set in China. Apparently, in some Arabic cultures from this era, China was something you would say just to mean like a generic kind of far-off place. So it could have been just a generic kind of its set. I mean... There's a big difference between Middle East and China, but... There there is indeed, yeah. But it's interesting that... So if you go and see a British pantomime version of Aladdin, maybe less so after the Disney came out, but the classic British pantomime of Aladdin is based on Chinese ethnic stereotypes (laughs) instead of Middle Eastern ethnic stereotypes. So it's interesting that Disney chose to set it in the part of the world with which it's most associated, not the part of the world in which the original story is set. But there's some more interesting deviations in the original story of Aladdin than that. For example, I mean, the story is quite different in a lot of ways. Aladdin does have a mother. He gets infinite wishes in this. Three wishes is something from The Thief of Baghdad. That's where the idea comes from, that there's only three wishes, and that's where Disney pulled a lot of its tropes from. But... In the original story, the thing that jumped out at me is that the princess is already promised to somebody else in this. She's already promised to the son of the Grand Vizier, who in this isn't like the villain. He's just kind of an obstacle because his son's going to marry the princess. So on their wedding night, 
they're about to consummate their marriage and Aladdin uses his genie to teleport the princess and her new husband to his house and he locks the prince in the toilet and like freezes him there. Amazing. Petrified, sitting on the porch. <laughs> and then Aladdin climbs into bed with the princess. He doesn't do anything, but he does have his okay. sword. So he's just lying there in bed next to the princess <laughs> holding his sword, making sure that they can't physically consummate this oh, marriage. Oh, God. Okay. He needs a genie. That's the role of the genie here, is telling him how to be like a good dude for Jasmine. If he does not have this in the original story, that's how he ends up just like lying in her bed with a sword. Yeah. So after this, he sends them both back to the palace, where neither of them are really comfortable talking about what's happened to the princess's father. But he kind of feels like something's probably up. Aladdin continues to do this every night until the Sultan basically realizes that they have not consummated this marriage and annuls it. Slash, you can marry Aladdin instead. So the tactics are different. That would have been a different song if Prince (laughs) Ali was instead about. Yeah, my gosh. All all of this situation locking in the toilet, sleeping with a sword. The locking in the toilet as well is an interesting wrinkle in that. (laughs) Yeah, or the privy, as it's translated, which I assume means toilet. (laughs) So, the other interesting wrinkle in this, which actually evokes a very different Robin Williams movie from around this time, is that when they kill the evil sorcerer, who is a different character to the vizier, they kill the evil sorcerer who sent Aladdin after the lamp, and then his even more evil brother comes for revenge. And he gets into Aladdin's house by disguising himself as an elderly healer woman which I think sounds a lot like Mrs. Doubtfire. There we go. Maybe that's an adaptation <laughs> of Aladdin as well. I think Robin Williams would have played the part of, of that character pretty well. So the princess kind of invites him into the palace to help them with whatever healing problems they have, and Aladdin almost immediately figures it out and just murders them. <laughs> the thing I love about this is that you've got, let's kill the Grand Vizier, and then the fact that they bring him his, like, brother who's more evil than him is, A, a classic straight-to-DVD Disney sequel move. It's also a massive Fast and Furious move. You get rid of the villain, you bring in a brother, (laughs) then they'll join the family for the next movie. I love it. I mean, that's a great role for John Cena. I totally agree. (laughs) I mean, let's bring get him in there. Okay, so, yeah, pretty different on the page then, various ways. I do, again, think that the songwriting powers of Howard Ashman, Alan Menken, and Tim Rice could have pulled off a song about, I'm trapping you in the toilet, I'm sleeping in your bed with a sword, and making sure that you can't have sex. I think that would be a real uh, lyrical masterwork. Well, you know, we're also talking about this idea, you know, early on in the podcast, the sanitization of these stories. Of course, This is a trickier story, you know, this is a story that... Even in our past, where we are probably uh, not as cognizant of offending people, even that one is like, oh, this is a tricky one. How do we break this one down? And I think, you know, you simplify it. You get these stories that are like, okay, we like this world. We like genie. We like wishes. Like, that's what kind of kicks in more than anything else, because it really is everything I've ever seen. This is a very light story. It's a romance. It's just a romance about a boy who meets a girl who uses his wishes to fall in love or to see her again, not even to fall in love with her. Yeah, so it's, it is interesting. So I get the sense that we're all pretty much very on board with this movie, but what did critics have to say at the time? I imagine this continues the string of critical hits. It does. It was very well received, but a lot of reviewers, I think this, it's interesting that a lot of reviewers compare it slightly less favourably to 
Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. At the time, it was very much seen as they are still good, but they are not quite as good, which I think is interesting because from our perspective, it feels like this continues the run and then they hit the Lion King, which is also amazing, and then Pocahontas is like the drop-off. And I think at the time, there seems to have been a critical sense that this is a slight curve downwards I like this review from Janet Maslin at the New York Times who says, If the makers of Aladdin had their own magic lamp, it's easy to guess what they'd wish for. Another classic as successful as Beauty and the Beast that crosses generational lines and moves seamlessly from start to finish. Aladdin is not quite that, but it comes as close as may have been possible without a genie's help. So yeah, it's like, it's good, it's not quite that good. And as well, this is like a movie where we are starting to see some of the cultural insensitivities like creep into the actual reviews at the time which is interesting so we've got like roger ebert's review for example highlighted the use of ethnic stereotypes even though it was otherwise positive and i think the fact that this was the most critiqued aspect of the film you can draw a direct line from that to like the way that they approached it in pocahontas where they did bring on more native american voices native american performers in the production of that well you know what i'd also say that oftentimes comedies are looked on as less than true this is essentially a comedy it's not as much of a a romance as beauty and the beast or little mermaid or as much as an adventure as the lion king is right like the lion king has much more of a uh a shakespearean tone to it this is just a straight fun disposable comedy and i think that people are like well i can be harsher on it i am going to critique these other elements to it i will look more negatively at this or that and you know it's a tricky movie because I think when comedy is so subjective and not that you're, but I think it also feels like, Oh, that's easy to do. That's easy to do. And, uh, and Robin Williams, you know, wherever you fall on him, you might feel like, ah, well, I'm just seeing the same thing. So I, I do think you have to put it with a grain of salt, you know, coming out of these other movies like, Oh, Disney's lost its way. It's now it's just Robin Williams making jokes. Where's the heart? Where's the, this it's like, well, no, it's all there. It's just different. It's a different thing. And I think now people are a little bit more trained that you can have, different types of films yeah definitely i'd never thought about this as you're right it's primarily a comedy with other elements in it whereas beauty and the beast and aladdin and lion king kind of skew on a more dramatic level so it's interesting yeah all the things that go into this as you say sam being still a critical hit but maybe not seen in quite the same reverence as the other films that we've just spoken about but i imagine it was a massive box office hit right i imagine this made all the money it made 500 million dollars which is yet again they have broken the record for biggest animated movie of all time like they're just doing that every single movie they put out breaks that record so bigger than beauty and the beast yeah bigger than beauty and the beast bigger than anything it was the biggest movie of the year as well uh, which i think is the first time disney have done that since like probably snow white like it was a huge hit just not even qualifying it as animation it was the biggest film out there which again it's crossing those generational gaps i think robin williams plays a big part in that which in turn obviously plays a part in the fact that that is a big part of this film's legacy as we've already discussed these other movies which try and implement that star power i think you know for me this is the movie that brought me into Disney or brought me back to Disney. I wasn't raining to see Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast. Right. And, you know, and that's maybe misogyny or maybe it's just like it wasn't appealing to me. But this brought me into the theater. I went backwards to check out the other ones and I went forward as a Disney fan of these new movies. But this was the one. It also, you know, got me used to the songs. It, you like these songs. And all of a sudden, you know, I think a lot of girls who talk to my age love the you know what is this isn't it neat you know that little mermaid song everyone's got their songs and this is i think the entry point for a lot of 
and I hate to be like so black and white with it, but a lot of like people who didn't see Disney movies or dudes or guys or boys, like it, it had a little bit more, it had a male protagonist, which is something that they didn't really have for a little bit of time. So I think that that is exciting. And it was a different, it was a different idea. It was funny. It was quick. It was, it just felt like a complete redo of Disney and made Disney feel cool. Yeah, I think that's a good point because that's clearly how Disney sees these things as well. Like, we might not like to think about movies in terms of, like, boys' movies and girls' movies, and, like, we both loved Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid watching it for this podcast, but I think you can see Disney from this point on try and kind of alternate it. So you'll get Pocahontas, and you'll get Hunchback of Notre Dame, you'll get Hercules, then you'll get Mulan, then you'll get Tarzan, and I think they still do that to this day. You'll get a princess movie, then you'll get, like, a Big Hero 6 or a Wreck-It Ralph. Right. And it's, it's still clearly like a driving impulse in terms of how they stagger their movies like we've just had Encanto now we're getting Strange Planet or whatever it's called like a big sci-fi action movie right and I think it's all about like getting in different audiences you know I think it's like and I think they've done a great job of also expanding their you know we talked about this a lot on Unspooled we're talking about Frozen like Disney isn't a genre animation isn't a genre it is a form of filmmaking right so you can have movies that you know the same way we have fast and furious in the notebook disney should be able to produce those same types of things like you know they don't have to just appeal to every demographic and i think sometimes that's when these movies get in trouble but i also think that jasmine is one of those sustaining characters and probably through the animated show and the video games and the thing like she's also a character that kids relate to as well oh you're speaking our language there paul animation it is a medium it's not a genre all the different genres let's uh, plug them into these films and see what happens that is absolutely our ethos here and so i want to come back to then you saying that this film obviously brought you into disney earlier in your life so what about now when you watched it this time how did you feel about the film what would your short review be and what star rating do you think you'd give this movie you know i'm gonna say this aladdin to me is a three and a half star movie and i don't give that in any bit of a slight i think that this movie is tremendously fun it is a movie that was a big part of my childhood but not a big part of my adult life and as i've gone on and looked back at different films i find a lot more appreciation for different films within you know that i go back to and this is not one they go back to now there was an issue with this movie that it wasn't available for a long time and then when robin williams passed they did bring it back out so you know at disney plus it's available i think where i would ding this movie is the plot is simple it's it's a very like you're like oh we're just into it and it's almost over i think the songs are good the romances i mean it's i'm being hard with my three and a half i want to give it four but i'm like is it like what's a five and that's what i'm really looking at what's a five star for this time five star and it's like oh geez it's hard it's hard <laughs> to break it down i'm gonna go with my gut three and a half stars is where i i think five would have to be absolute perfection i feel like uh, if I would be judging this, I think Lion King may be a four-star movie, if that's if that makes about sense. And I would say that probably Beauty and the Beast is probably rocking that uh, three-and-a-half, four-star one as well. I, you know, that in Little Mermaid 3. <laughs> Just to put it in its full Oh, content. I thought you meant Little Mermaid 3. Like, that's your favorite oh, Disney Little movie. Oh, Little Mermaid 3, that's fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Sam, we both gave Beauty and the Beast five stars last time. I think we were all loved up on Beauty wow. and the Beast. there you go. Also, this is trying to be relatively objective, but also entirely subjective to our experiences, and right. also in the context of all the other Disney movies. That is a five-star Disney yeah. movie. For me, Sam, this is going to be a four and a half. 
I kind of agree with the critical reception at the time. Seeing it again and seeing it in the wake of Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, there's still so much about this film that I thought was incredible, and especially the Robin Williams stuff, the comedy. I do think the songs are just a smidge of a step down from Beauty and the Beast. They didn't quite catch me in the same way as a lot of those songs. But I still had an absolute blast with this movie. And it's just a joy seeing Disney at the peak of its powers here, at being funny and inventive and colourful and catchy and just absolutely in its pomp. Uh, but what are you thinking? So, yeah, I liked this less on this watch through than I have previously. It fell a little bit in my estimations, and I think it is because. Like, the best stuff is the genie, and then when you watch it, it's like, he's not actually in it as much as you remember. Mm. And I think, even though I've seen this movie a bunch, like, I've seen it recently, I wrote a boot chapter about it, like, a couple of years ago, but it's, for some reason, on this watch through, those, like, the blander aspects of the plot and the amount of time that it spends on those pulled me back a little bit. Having said that, I am talking about dropping it from like five stars to four and a half stars <laughs> as well, because that's the scale I'm operating on. Because as well, I upgrade these things a lot in terms of like the animation. I just think the animation on the Genie character especially gives it like a whole star at least. But I did have to go, it's the first time in the history of this podcast that I've had to go into my very meticulously curated letterboxed lists of animated films and drop it down a few notches on the on the top 200 ranking that i keep of every animated movie i've ever seen Uh, i drop it down a couple the dropping of a half star is official on your letterbox it's official on my letterbox it's the first time that's happened in the history of this podcast that i've I've re-starred something on letterbox on this watch through i like that and you know what i think i really was looking at this as a four-star review i'm gonna i'm gonna amend oh i'm gonna i'm gonna amend and go like this yeah beauty and the beast i will give five stars to as well because i'm really looking at like i just looked at the list of disney movies Mm -hmm. i'm I'm, I'm looking at the list of disney movies five-star disney movie is beauty and the beast i'm gonna say this is a four-star disney movie uh no half and i'm gonna also maybe put lion king in that five-star realm without rewatching it and then i'm gonna drop Little Mermaid just a little bit below the three and a half star. I think that's right where I'm kind of like living. I, that that seems about right. So three, if we're going in the order of release, three, five, four. I feel like if we keep talking, we're going to get you up to a five stars on this movie. Uh, <laughs> you know what it was? As I, I was really thinking, I was like, why? Well, what is a five star? What is? And I was like looking at that list. I'm like, well, these are pretty much the the cream of the crop. Like th- that, even up until now, I don't see that many ones topping it but i do think you know what sam you were saying about the genie the memory of this movie makes it a five-star movie yeah definitely. the watching of this movie pops it down a little bit that's not a bad thing though because the memory is what we often take away to everything it's sort of like i remember this movie fondly i like this character i think it's impressive it's really fun but i do think of it based on what you are all saying too it's like and beauty and the beast is a lot more timeless and i think that when you look back i don't think it's because of cultural insensitivities that this movie isn't as popular as beauty and the beast i think it is really just beauty and the beast is much more of a timeless well-told story where this is a little bit more of a mishmash saved by great performances and great songs take away the performances and songs this is a, a pretty lackluster disney experience 
I agree, yeah. I'll tell you what, this is the most action-packed review section we've ever had. We've got star <laughs> ribbons getting shifted every which way I had to really look. think about it. I, going first is tricky. I'm like trying to put it all in context, but it is it is grappling with it. It's like, what is it that it's not sitting perfectly with me? Because I do remember it perfectly, and I think that's uh, a tricky thing. Well, I think you've hit on the ranking of those four movies. That's more or less what it is on my uh, letterbox. So I feel like well, at least we're of a piece in that sense, Paul, you and I. Yeah, there we go. So that brings us to the final section of the show, Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. And in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, there is a whole universe out there for each character. So Sam, I bet there is a huge Lasting Legacy for Aladdin, and there's a part of that that is very close to my heart and my childhood, because... The platform game, the video game. Yes. I I mean, in my head, I played that a lot as a kid. If I actually looked back on it, I probably played the extremely hard, hard as nails first level a bunch of times, died a load of times, tried to collect those apples, tried to hop over those fires and slash at the henchmen, and failed absolutely miserably. But I, my memories of that game are probably more fond than my actual ability to complete it. Are we talking about the genesis one or the the super nintendo and are they the same i think they might be the same so i played it on pc we had it on computer okay got uh, it. but it will have been a remake because you can get them on switch now i was uh it popped up on my amazon yes. the other day it's like a box that has this and the lion king which we also had and was also hard as nails but it looks so good because like the animation of it it was like one of those like oh video games look amazing because yeah. they were able to really just make it look like you were in the movie or at that point in my life it looked like this is the best video game <laughs> will ever get i think that's the genesis one right is that the one that you yes heard? yeah that's yes. so the main difference is like on the snes it's still like pixel art but on the genesis it is really scanning and adapting the yeah, actual cells from the movie it looks stunning the lion king one's the same yeah those are really cool games i feel like we should then at some point after you've become wed, we'll come round and bust out that Switch collection yes. of, uh, of Aladdin. Sign me up. Okay, yeah, so I did have a point about the video games. I feel like that's been comprehensively covered. Let's blast through some stuff, because I really want to talk about the parks. That's kind of the, the peak of Aladdin's legacy in some ways. So, sequels-wise, you've got Return of Jafar, which is the first... Se- so, Aladdin 2, Return of Jafar, that's the first direct-to-video sequel that Disney ever did. Really? Which is interesting. I mean, that's a legacy of this movie. It invented that as a practice. The cursed, cursed legacy of this movie is that it began (laughs) straight-to-DVD or straight-to-video sequels. Yeah, because it was originally... like The the original plan was we're going to do the TV show, which is fine. I haven't rewatched any of the show for this, so we won't talk about that too much, but it was like long and expansive and kind of good for what it was. But that was the original plan, and Return of Jafar was going to be the first episode of the show, but it was going to be like an hour-long kind of TV special event thing. But there's this guy called Tad Storms, great name, who was one of the top guys at Disney TV at the time, and he suggested making it longer and releasing it on video. So that's what they did. It was an unbelievably huge success. It cost $5 million. And what I have read, this is inconceivable, but what I have read is that it made $300 million in VHS sales. What? It was like one of the biggest video releases of all time. I have to tell you that one of my first jobs was working at Blockbuster, and... 
one of my first things that I had to do, one of the things was pre-sell the original Aladdin to everybody who came into this video store. And the amount of Aladdin that we moved, the, the first one, not even the second one, was so tremendous. Like everyone bought Aladdin for 1999 at that blockbuster. It was truly one of the, it. Uh, we moved so much merch. People were so excited to have it. It was also to me, this beginning of the, the vault, yeah. the vault. Everyone started to hear about the vault at this point, you know. And I can believe it because on the one hand, I'm shocked here. You saying that, what is this, King of Thieves? No, King of Thieves is three. Return of Jafar is two. But the Return of Jafar, I think was, because everyone was so frantic for the first mm. one. They were like, of course we yeah. got to get the second one. Yeah. And it was like, and it was a direct to DVD, which, but it was, it seemed high level. It just felt like when you get like a streaming movie that like, is out uh, on streaming before it's in the theater. Like I got, oh, I have to spend $25 for Fletch. <laughs> you know, I, that, I, there's no, there's no choice. I have it, you know, it's there. I mean, I'm, I'm stunned. The $300 million is a lot of money, but we had this VHS. So I've contributed to that, <laughs> you know, yeah, we had this at yeah. home. So it's not as good but the animation's not as good obviously dan castellanetta is the genie fine by the way this one does have a cultural stereotypes warning on disney plus as well and this time they mean it like dan castellanetta is doing some pretty unfortunate accents in this thing for some of genie's See, transformations that's what i'm talking about like this is why robin williams is kind of perfect because you think of the trappings that they could have done and the easier jokes and he yeah. just kind of just did robin williams as genie which I think was his best move. So with Castellanetta, it's like, which I'm sure he's a good improviser as well, but they're trying to script the kind of improvisations that Robin Williams might have done. So it loses a bit of that magic. It's very Iago-centric, because I guess that's the celeb that they've still yes. got, is Gottfried. Jason Alexander is in it as a new villain called Abyss Mal. So that's quite a get, I guess. Like, Seinfeld was still a big deal, I think, at this point. But yeah, you've got Gottfried still there. It's all about Iago's redemption, which is entirely because they wanted him to be in the TV show as a recurring character, so they had to like get him out of the lamp and redeem him so that he can be Aladdin's friend. And what that really means is that we get two songs sung by Gilbert Gottfried, oh. which is a bit much. Oh, no, I want that. I, I haven't had a chance to rewatch this. That? I want to go back and watch this uh. now for the Gilbert Gottfried songs. Okay, well, brace yourself, because... <laughs> Aladdin's singing like this. The man this. is not a gifted singer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He's singing love songs. He's doing oh. crazy stuff in this movie. But, you know, good Amazing. for him. So, it's whatever. Now, the Aladdin movie that I have seen the most is probably King of Thieves, which is the third one, because that's the only one that we had on VHS when I was a kid. So I was watching this the other day, again, getting very excited for Ben's wedding because it's all about Aladdin and Jasmine finally getting married, but the wedding is crashed by the 40 thieves. Hope oh. that doesn't happen at your wedding, Ben. <laughs> Me too. But... And I definitely hope this doesn't happen. It turns out the king of the 40 thieves is Aladdin's dad. Ooh. So is your wow. dad a king of thieves, do you think, Ben? He doesn't uh, give off that no, vibe. No, he is a textile agent. Oh, so he says. Yeah, perfect cover. So Robin Williams is back for this one. He came back because they gave him $1 million and an apology for using his likeness in the promotion of the movie, which is the one thing he asked them not to do. He made $75,000 for the first Aladdin. He did it for scale because he felt he owed Disney for his successes in things like Good Morning Vietnam and Dead Poets Society, but they stabbed him in the back and... They, to apologize the first time round, they sent him a million dollar Picasso painting 
is a self-portrait of Picasso dressed as Vincent van Gogh, which is a weird, random, very specific oh, wow. painting, which Williams did not want in his house. <laughs> so this time they just gave him a million dollars and an apology. Yeah, so it's fine. Like, Williams is, like, doing the Williams thing. The songs are better in this one than in Return of Jafar. It's one of my favourites that we've watched so far, sequel-wise, but again, that's not saying much, so... Let's move on from these things to something which I find more interesting, which is the theme parks. So, Paul, have you experienced... Have you been to Disneyland Paris? Uh, I have, yes. Have you experienced Le Passage Enchanté d'Aladin? No, I have not. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so that's obviously French for, like, Aladdin's Enchanted Passage, which is, as I say it out loud... <laughs> Um, slightly amusing turn of phrase. Yeah. Yeah. But that is exactly what it sounds like. It's in Adventureland and it's basically like a little corridor that you walk through and it's got weird dioramas of like, I say weird, that's not the right word. It's just little like cute dioramas of the Aladdin story with tiny little animatronics and it's fine, but it's like, this is, there are not that many park rides based on Aladdin, and for one of them to be... No, what you get is stage shows. Yes. Which are just the songs, right? It's like, and that's like, who wants to waste your time doing that? Yeah, and the genie making, like, topical references yeah. as well. So we've also got, like, I think on the last episode I said that, like, Beauty and the Beast is the movie whereby the gulf between the movie and the sequels is the biggest. And I think Aladdin might be the movie where the gulf between the movie and the theme park iterations is the biggest. Because, like, the only actual Aladdin ride is, like, the magic carpets of Aladdin, which is just a rip-off of Dumbo. You're just on these flying carpets that go round and round. So again, I think they've got this in the American Again, parks. I want to talk about Disney Quest. Okay, all right. Disney Quest. Disney Quest did have the Magic Carpet VR. Yeah. Uh, which was a lot more fun because it was a lot more interactive. So it was like a, uh, a virtual, like they were doing VR before 2004, I think it was. Right. You know, uh, you could actually like see what it's like. You actually can watch full run-throughs of it on uh, YouTube. And that was a lot of fun to have a VR flying on the magic carpet. And I think that's why they got Robin Williams to do the mm. voice of the Disney quest. Cause that was like a big ticket item there. Well, I'm very sorry. All due respect to Disney quest. Uh, it sounds a lot better than the crappy flying carpet rides. The weird thing about that is in Paris, it's in the MGM studios park. So they had to come up with a movie theme for it. So the idea is that Genie is a director and you're an extra in this movie that Genie is making and you're riding a magic carpet around and around in a circle, <laughs> which seems like a bit of a reach. But, okay, we need to talk about... Paul, are you a big Enchanted Tiki Room guy? Oh, huge. So have you experienced oh, yes, Enchanted yes. Tiki Room under new management? <laughs> Yes, I have. I have. Oh, my God. What is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but by the way, I mean, it's fine. I mean, it's fine. It's, you know, look, it makes it better than what it kind of was. But now I think they've brought it back to the original, I think, now. I don't yeah. think that uh, Gilbert Godfrey is doing it anymore. <laughs> I was going to say, you sound so despondent. What was this? Under oh, new yeah. management? So for Ben's benefit, so the Enchanted Tiki Room is an attraction that's been around since, like, the 60s, where you sit in a room and you watch some very charming animatronic birds sing some very charming Sherman Brothers songs. And it's a good bit of fun. It's kind of like where you go to get out of the sun and relax a little bit, but it's got a really cool vibe to it. 
And in 1998, they updated it. It became under new management, which means that Iago and his business partner, Zazu from The Lion King, have bought the Enchanted Tiki Room. And Iago has some ideas (laughs) about what this attraction could be. So the show starts like the normal Tiki Room, but then it gets interrupted mid-song by Iago, who's like, What is this song? Turn this off! This is terrible! Then he does his own song, which is a version of Friend Like Me, but he's changed the lyrics, so it's about how crap the Enchanted Tiki (laughs) Room is. And he's singing this version of Friend Like Me that's just like saying that these songs in the tiki room are boring and all you birds are boring and you need to be hipper you need some modern pop songs in there and it's like why did they think it was a good idea to make an update of this attraction which is beloved but the premise is it's iago telling you how crap the original attraction is. it feels like they poochied it they (laughs) went full poochie on the enchanted tiki room well, you know, I think what they forget sometimes is like Disney is known for a lot like nostalgia, right? There's a certain element to what we remember at Disney as a longtime fan of the parks and what we like and what we don't like. And so sometimes I think, oh, it's so outdated. These old tiki robots, they're just it's not fun. But then when you change it, you're like, well, just rip it down. But don't try to like update this thing. Like that's interesting when it first opens, but now you're trying to update it and you're adding jokes, but it's still like the same kind of lame show. It's like, give me Country Bear Jamboree, which is just all those bears singing around doing their like weird country music. And don't worry about commenting on that. It's shitty. Just be like, oh, that's part of the charm of the park, the, Mm. you know, the old school nature of the park. And they constantly make these changes that I think are not necessarily additive. They're just kind of like, weird updates like for example a good change is the princess and the frog like updating like splash mountain it's like okay great we're gonna reconceive this we're gonna do it it fits in with the theme we're gonna really do it but it will be the difference of like taking out brer rabbit and brer fox and like putting in like mr incredible going like oh we're caught in this weird mountain uh, better get out you know it's like it, it just seems like a hat on a hat and yes they're definitely birds but like what are they watching why are they together you know it's like stupid if it was like haunted mansion holiday maybe where it's like something you bring in for like two months and then it's gone and you get the original but it thing also back. works it works organically yeah that, that's the way to do it if this was like a one-off thing or a thing they did every so often i think people might have been a little bit more receptive to it but it was like this ran for like 13 years it what is one of the most reviled Disney attractions in history and it just kept going for 13 years. It only stopped in 2011 because Iago was destroyed in a mysterious fire. <laughs> uh, Paul, where were you on the night that the Enchanted Tiki Room under new management? Uh, I can't talk about that legally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and then, then they built it back as the normal Tiki Room. We didn't try and restore Iago. It's like, let's just do what worked. And by the way, let's all just be, uh, let's be honest here. The only reason why that Tiki Room exists is because they need to sell those Dole Whips it's like nearby. I feel like it's all part of the same thing. It's like, just rip it all down. We don't need to see that anymore. It's it's sort of like that carousel of progress. Sometimes we have to say like, don't need to update it. Don't need to reinvent it. Either keep yeah. it the same. But I'll tell you, when I brought my kids to it, when they were very young, it was like one of the things that they loved. So maybe I'm wrong. It's, it's finding the balance between like, are these parks a museum to the ideas that Walt Disney and these other guys had right. in the 60s? Or are they something that is meant to be continuously updated, which was kind of the original intention in the first place? And Yeah, I think that Walt Disney would be consistently trying to do different things, not just living in the past. Walt Disney seems to be the opposite of trapping things in amber, right? You know, and, it, and I feel like but his legacy 
is like, what would Walt do? It's like, well, what would Walt do in 2022 is a very different question than what yeah. would Walt do in 1957. So speaking of recycling the past, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I don't care enough. Would Walt Disney in 2022 remake Aladdin with Will Smith? I don't know. Oof. It just I don't I, I don't want to spend too much time on that because it's fine. It's not one of the best ones. It's not one of the worst ones. Will Smith works as a Robin Williams replacement because he's not trying to do the same thing. He's bringing his own personality to I it. I would never want to step into those shoes. I think that stepping into those yeah. shoes is really hard. I think that Disney's doing a very weird thing of just live actioning classic Disney films and not really adding that much to them. Just kind of like taking all the iconic images and just taking them from cartoon and making them live action. It's it's bizarre, but it also, you know, look, it's working. Financially, it's working. So I guess they're going to keep on doing it. And it's sort of like, what better place to start than with the big hits? I will say at least when we talked about Beauty and the Beast, I was upset that for me, the live action-ish Beauty and the Beast, the Be Our Guest sequence loses all the energy. I will say at least, I do think it's no way near as good, but the Guy Ritchie, uh, Friend Like Me sequence at least has a good bit of pizzazz and energy to it. So I applaud it on that front. And I will never know (laughs) because I will never watch it. I will never subject myself to it. Paul, if I was going to say one thing, just so you feel like you've experienced something of this movie without actually having to watch it. Yeah. I cannot tell you the way that all the breath left my body watching this in the press screening. Watching the film, it's, it's Aladdin, as you know it. A couple of extra songs. Will Smith as the genie. Lights go down, and just as the credits is about to begin, this voice booms through the IMAX speakers, and it just goes, DJ Khaled! And a DJ Khaled song starts playing, and you felt the audience just go, what? It's a DJ Khaled remix of Friend Like Me with, Will with new raps wow. from Will Smith. All right, now you're going to make me watch it. I will also say one other thing, too. I did see it on Broadway, and that is very much like what's watching the cartoon come to life. And in many respects, probably a better version than what you probably saw in that <laughs> film. It's Because it's like it looks and feels the same. Maybe we don't need to add that much to it. I don't know. I don't know. It's a tricky one. So speaking of the Broadway show, that segues really nicely into the last and one of the weirdest and maybe one of the most culturally significant legacies of the Aladdin movie, which kind of stems from the Broadway show. You might be familiar with this. I'd be interested to know if you are. All of these Broadway shows kind of add new songs, and where they can, they add in songs that were deleted from the original movie. So they add in some of the Howard Ashman songs that he wrote. And one of those is a song that Aladdin was originally going to sing to his mother called Proud of Your Boy, which in the Broadway show he sings in memory of his mother. And it's about how he wants to make his mom proud, by being like not a street rat, by being kind of a nice guy, by being a uh, someone who achieves something with his life. So this was reinstated in the Broadway adaptation. A guy called Gavin McInnes heard this song at his daughter's school concert because this became like one of the big cult songs from the mm-hmm. show, and it became a big audition song and a big like school recital song. And this guy, Gavin McInnes, became obsessed with this song because he hated it. He thought it was annoying, and in particular, he took issue with the idea of a man apologising to a woman for his behaviour, saying things like, um, I'm slow for my age, a late bloomer, I agree. And tell me I've been a louse and a loafer, you won't get a fight here. And he kind of interpreted it as Aladdin apologising for being a boy. And such was his fascination with a song that this guy used it as the name for his far-right hate movement, The Proud Boys. Well, I never have heard that, and I am blown away that you would take the thing 
But isn't that like a couple of things like that? There's a few alt-right things that are like, well, if you hated it so much, why did you name your thing this? Yeah, right. They sing the song at Proud Boy rallies. They sing the Proud of Your Boys song, which is like a song written by a gay man from a musical with a majority people of colour cast. Feels so... I mean, it is sick, and that's why they're doing it. He's doing it because he hates the song, right? But yeah. And he's trying to, like, reappropriate it. But it just feels so... It's That's a weird note to end this podcast on, because that's going to be the last thing that we'll talk about, but... Well, here, you know what? I, I'll give you one more thing to add to, because I don't know if we talked about the parks, but did you ever hear this thing? Have you heard the rumor that Aladdin can kill any guest at Walt Disney World? That he's the only character allowed <laughs> to kill a guest? Kill our guest, kill our yes. guest. So this is a, a whole thing where Aladdin, uh, for a while, there was a story online that Aladdin was the only character allowed to kill somebody in the park if a guest was in trouble. And this is like a weird thing that was like busted by Snopes. But it's it's weird, right? So Disney Parks had this thing called the Aladdin Exception. <laughs> and uh, it was a rule that the actor portraying the character Aladdin gets to kill guests if absolutely necessary. And it was from the handbook. Now, they say that that is false. It was from the Disney handbook. Uh, it's park safety section. It might have been a joke. Although we want every Disney guest to have fun, our number one priority is safety. Because of this, Aladdin will never under any circumstance kill a park <laughs> guest unless it's absolutely necessary to save the lives wow. of a greater number of park guests. This is referred to the as the Aladdin exemption. Uh, does he use a wish for that? Does he just wish for this to stop? I don't know. It apparently originated from a satirical article that was published on ClickHole, but it got around all these different websites where people were just believing that Aladdin had this weird thing in the Disneyland cast book that he could kill again. That's amazing. Well, I mean, that's a slightly less dark note to end on than my Do you know what? I have one very last, very short thing to end on, which is if you go and find the documentary Life Animated, which is a wonderful thing, it's about a guy who grew up with autism and massively latched onto Disney movies, and one of the Disney movies he was most obsessed with is Aladdin, especially the part of Iago. And he puts on screenings of Disney movies for his other autistic friends, and they sit around and watch Aladdin together. There is a scene in this documentary that I'm sure you'll find on YouTube where Gilbert Gottfried goes and joins them in the room, and everyone loses their minds. And it is so joyous. Yeah, if you search Life Animated, Gilbert Gottfried... Go and watch that scene because it is one of the most joyful things you'll ever see in your life. So that has to be part of the lasting legacy of Aladdin. I love it. Five stars. <laughs> there we go. We got you to five. And that is it for this week's class. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Have you enjoyed your time in the hallowed halls of Disneyversity? I have. I feel like we've talked about so yeah. much and yet so little. <laughs> we had so much out there. What a great experience. Uh, I love this show and I love what y'all are doing. Thank you so much for having me uh, on the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure. It's such a joy to have you with us. And yeah, Unspooled, new episodes dropping every Thursday. Yes, I would say that you should check us out. We have a great back catalog. We are going through new classics old classics everywhere from you know the night of the hunter to robocop to the original halloween to casino royale we're all over the map just finished up a horror series and are going into a spy series so it's a lot of fun and really you could jump in at any single episode uh, and don't listen to the Hellraiser episode if you love Hellraiser, because you'll dislike me right out of the gate. So there, that's all I'll say. I will not do that. <laughs> no, there it is. Well, 
join us again for our next seminar as the circle of life continues and we welcome the arrival of the Lion King. I'm so excited for that one, Sam. I can't wait for us to sit down and record. Uh, but in the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review or a star rating, maybe even that five stars, we got Paul there. Get it in. Uh, we'll take you on a magic carpet ride and show you a whole new world. Just sign this waiver saying any accidents or falling from said magic carpet <laughs> is your own responsibility. And we're good to go. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Paul. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you for next week's class. Bye. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.